Lock it up, very quiet and still. Ready. Scene one, take three, A mark. Okay, well, everybody uh, gets in here. I'm just gonna do a quick little spiel. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Happy Hour. I've got uh, an Empress Gin Negroni for my uh, cocktail date today. I hope you guys have something fun or a nice iced coffee to get you through the hour. Um, today, we are really excited uh, to welcome today's guest, Anthony Boyer, head of DDO's theatrical department. It's um, a fun change for us. The first two guests we've had have been longtime friends of John's. Um, this is actually also like a get to know you date for us where uh, John and Anthony don't know each other already. Um, and so it's going to be fun. We're going to, we're going to chat. Please use the chat, ask questions on the Q and A thing. We'll get to a Q and A at the end. And uh, now I'm really excited to bring in, if I remember how to do this. Yep. Bring in John and Anthony. There you guys are. Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. And to you. And I'm drinking 805. So got 805 and John, what do you have? 805 is really good. I am drinking a little uh, Casamigos uh, Reposado. Ooh. Ooh. That's a very nice. fine choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I'm beginning to rethink my 805. Fasten <laughs> <laughs> it up a bit. Um, I just want to start it off because, um, Anthony, you reached out to us as, uh, as one get to like know our community a little bit. So I thought maybe you could just tell everybody kind of what the idea of that email was initially, and uh, we can start from there and see where we go. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, when we get sort of like in the like nuts and bolts of doing the job every day, um, there's so much to do. You know, I put in 14 hour days and like to leave at the end of the day, there's just never enough time. And so one of the sort of nice things about quarantine, if there, there are a few nice things about it, is that I have time to kind of give back to people who have given me value over the years. Um, I've referred a lot of people to John. Everyone speaks highly of the studio. Um, and I thought, you know, it's, I've just been remiss about starting a personal relationship. So I was like, I'm going to reach out to the people who have really given value that I don't know yet. So I reached out to you guys. I reached out to some photographers I've referred business to people who I know their work, but I don't know them. So I figured might as well take advantage. It's a beautiful start. I love it. I love that. Well, it just goes to show you that we are all so busy and sometimes we feel like we have relationships with people even though we've never talked. Yeah, and, it's crazy. And I know I've always heard lovely things about you and, you know, we often have the impulse like, I should reach out and then we just yeah. don't. Yeah, I mean, there's always a hundred people you should be reaching out to at any given time and so it's all triage, right? Like the entire industry is just triage. So now it's like, okay, these are, it's not even like low priority. It's just like, these are people that I just haven't, haven't had the time. So it's nice. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I, I know I've had a, a freaking week. Um, yeah. Brian and I were talking earlier and I, you know, one of the, uh, you know, I keep on hearing, um, uh, talking to actors every day and seeing them in class. And, you know, the hardest thing about coronavirus is, is in this quarantine is life doesn't stop. Yeah. You know, and you're watching a lot of people, maybe because of the stress of the day, it feels like a few more people are getting ill outside of coronavirus and just life is just coming in waves. Um, and so one of the things that was, I, one of the reasons Brian and I started this was just to humanize you know, everybody who's in, in it, you know, to say like, God, I mean, I'm going through it, uh, you know, and, and I find that the pendulum swings really hard, you know, hour to hour and day to day. Don't you find? 
You know, it's been, I've had an interesting process because I'm really good at keeping busy. I don't know if it's because I was a latchkey kid when I was in high school. I don't know what it is, but from the hours of 9.30 to 6.30, Monday through Friday, I'm good. Um, I, I'm working, I'm at my, either at my office or here at home. But the second that I like take the suit off, take the body armor off, like seven o'clock at night or the weekends, like those are really, really hard. And I think, you know, I can put it off so long, but it's, it's, it really is just sort of putting on blinders. And like, once I get to that, like end of the line, it all starts to hit you. Um, and you don't even just like reaching out to friends and you think you're right. I mean, it's sort of this idea that like you're frozen in time. It's like people talk about not to liken these two things, but people talk about when they go away to war and they come back and everyone else has moved on, even though to them it's as if, you know, it's as, as exactly as, as when they left. It's the same sort of thing where you reach out and you forget other people's lives have have, are also changing and moving on and they've got things happening. They've got stressors. I'm very fortunate that, you know, I have an income during this and like there are things that pieces of th things that are an advantage that are just, you know, not everyone has and everyone's dealing with a lot. I think I'm not exactly an empath, but I am someone who has the job of like taking care of other people. And so I do think I tend to take their problems on a little bit yeah. um, for better or worse, which can be hard. I know, uh, I, I honestly, I'm forgetting, it's hard to keep track of time, but like, uh, it was either last week or the week before, but like I had had a friend pass who I went to graduate school with and someone dear, part of the Jarris family is very sick. And, uh, when I heard about all this news, I was having a 14 hour work day, which is pretty much my work day. Right. And you're right. We compartmentalized. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I remember I got together, I, I taught my Wednesday night class and it's a whole bunch of just gorgeous human beings who, you know, are very authentic and present. And I just looked at them and, and like, boy, you, it, that's when tears just started coming out. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, like there, that's the thing is there's going to be a release somewhere. So for you, it's when you take off for what it's you that when you get rid of the, the, the uniform. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, just when I connect with someone that I know, like on a human level, you know, on a personal yeah. level, um, because you can put on the blinders for so long, but the trouble, the things aren't going anywhere. You can ignore them as long as you like, but they're going to hit you and they're accruing interest along the way. So that can be really difficult. You're such a lovely person. It's so nice to meet you. Oh, thank you. Um, and well, no, it sounds like I'm, I'm just, I can just see you really truly caring about your people. That's yeah, it. well, and I, that's always been, you know, I started this department in November of 2013. I was an assistant for four years at a small agency that no one's ever heard of. And I just saw a lot of, we worked with a lot of people that I just genuinely didn't like. Um, they were old friends of my bosses or they'd been there for a long time. So one of the big things for me when I started this department was I, I only wanted to work with people I liked. And that's been really, really big for me because there's, there's a lot of talent in this town. Um, and life is too short. So I do genuinely care about all of my clients. Like it is, it is a really big deal for me to, to, to like someone to want to work with them. I can imagine. Now, let me ask you during this time, uh, I'm sure you're getting a lot of calls. Are your, are your, are your clients calling you asking you for guidance? We're being really proactive. That's one of the things I'm filling my time with is we're actually calling them. Um, I'm doing, I'm reaching out to, I've reached out to almost all of them at this point 
and we just sit down on Zoom and we spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, really just like talking about where they're at mentally, emotionally. I'm really trying to avoid the, the like, how do I get ahead uh, conversations just because I feel like there's, I get that some people really staying busy is how they cope. And that's cool. I'm one of those people. But for me, I don't want that to be what they're focused on, what they're stressed about is like the, the industry. Like the industry, I keep saying like, you can, you can practice all you want. You can go out to the field and run as many plays as you want, but it's halftime. Like the other team is on the bench. You can score as many goals. They don't count in the game. So, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's this idea of, of every, I want everyone focused on like life and like getting through this and whatever that means for them. So that's been the big thing for me is, and you know, then it inevitably gets to the same questions, which is like, you know, when do you think production is going to start? I would say about 60% of my clients are probably not in Los Angeles right now. I've encouraged all of them to go, you know, wherever is safest for them, wherever their family is. So it's a lot of like, when do I come back? Um, and of course, there's no great answer, right? There's a new, there's, we hear something new every day, every week. Um, I'm reading deadline the same as they are. I'm talking to a lot of people, but we're all, it's all a guessing game at this point. So it's really just about sort of like helping shepherd them through this as much as possible. Today, uh, uh, I just walked into the kitchen a little bit. My wife had a look of, uh, uh, I don't know whether the word is, uh, panic or devastation, but I think she had just gotten word that LA at USD is um, preparing their schools to still be teaching the next year's classes online. Yeah. That is a, uh, that's a big one. So I think that's the other thing is that, you know, new information is always trickling in and, you know, we're, yeah. you know, we're, everyone's looking for guidance and it's coming, yeah. you know, it changes weekly. And you're right. And it's interesting where it comes from. Like looking back, I think at the beginning of this, we all kind of thought this would be like two weeks We'll be out, you know, we'll take a little break. I, th I really thought I was going to, I thought I was going to like section hike the PCT, like do like five days on the trail. And then, you know, but looking back, we had all these like indicators, right? Like when South by closed, like that should have been a huge canary in the coal mine, but I just don't think any of us looked at it that way. But like, this is a large festival with millions of dollars to lose in Texas. Like this should have been something where that grabbed my attention at least a little bit more than I did. And, you know, LAS, USD, like the city theoretically has access to a lot of information that I don't have. Um, and it's great because we, we're in such, we're in an industry that's really populated by as much as, you know, we like to think of the cynicism and the pessimism, like it really is a bunch of optimists. It's people who want to tell stories and who want to, you know, share their, their, their essence with other people and share their stories with other people and uplift people for the most part. And it's a, it's a really, it's full of ingenuity too. And so like, if, if there's an industry that's going to think about like, how can we sort of get back to work? It's this one. So the fact that we don't have answers is actually a really big answer. Um, the fact that no one's just like, here's the plan. Here's how it's going to work. Um, even when you read the articles and deadlines, it's just like, here's what I think. And we might do this. We might try this. And so I think, you know, when you look at that, it's, it's, it's easy to feel, uh, a little overwhelmed, but also it's, um, you know, it's, it's also nice. It's also encouraging that that conversation, those conversations are happening at least. Right. Um, I think we mentioned this last week, but like I had a, 
few actors in class night, last night discuss how they were having a difficult time learning their lines. And, and these are actors that normally don't struggle. And I literally had to remind them, like, guys, the thing we're experiencing right now and the way we're experiencing, we're practicing the exact thought process that's not helpful for acting. So be, be, be nice to yourselves. I mean, like literally acting is all about like, let's be present to what's happening. Let's be present to the given circumstances. But if all day, I mean, most of us and a lot of people I'm sure listening are worrying about where are they gonna be a month from now? Where are they gonna be, you know, three months from now? And so it does take, it's extra challenging just to kind of sit down, be present. So it takes that, it takes a lot more effort. It takes a lot yeah. more sort of self. You really have to self-generate that that initiative, you know? That's a really good observation. You're right. Like, it is about, you know, sort of being able to access that. And some people cope by not accessing that. But you're right. That's it's it's It changes sort of how we approach a lot of things. And so that's obviously going to affect the work, too. I would also, it's sort of a funny thing because it's like also like learning lines is – well, kind of the least of anyone's. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like, uh, okay. Like, you yeah, know. Right. What can you do? right. <laughs> but, so yeah, that's been, it's been interesting to sort of see because, you know, I think actors especially are, do tend to be empaths. And, um, you know, we always talk about, or I always, I, I've talked to many of my clients about, they, they want to know how they can help other people. They're, you know, like they, they, it's always about like, here are the people I love and here are the people I want to take care of. And I have to remind them a little bit, like you really should be one of the people you love. You really should be one of the people that you take care of. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to, I think, for us to prioritize ourselves in a lot of ways because it is sort of, I guess, frowned upon a little bit to, to have like a selfish attitude. But the truth is like, it's really important that we get ourselves through this too. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you, uh, you know, for me, uh, I, you know, obviously talking to my wife, I have a child. I talk to Brian Norris. I talk to my, my, a lot of intimates very often and teaching, you know, demands that I stay present and that I think saves me. What are some of your tools that you use to just get out of your, get out of your way? Yeah. Well, we've always been, I've just, I've always been like a big data fiend. Um, I like to bury myself in systems. I like to like just gather as much information as I can. That affects our, that affects my work. Um, I do a metric ton of scouting. And I think that that's sort of the idea for me is like, it's, I'm still really busy. Like I'm still feeling, you know, I keep joking that I'm down to a 40 hour work week, but it's also kind of true. Um, so for me, it's actually that that helps me not just being busy but specifically the optimism um i'm the reason what i'm doing is i'm looking at you know the shows that are getting picked up i'm looking at like casting director contacts i'm looking at building these relationships and so the nice thing for me to remind myself or that's a way for me to remind myself that what i'm doing is building a bridge to whatever it's going to look like and listen i have panic attacks about what it's going to look like too but whatever it's going to be, it's going to be in some ways better. It's going to like, I, I just feel like we're going to come out of this very strong. We're going to come out of this ready to create. We're going to come out of this with this idea of like time is finite and you know, we really have to kind of lay it all out. So for me, it really is about sort of dreaming of and planning for that eventual future. You know, it's hard. We're looking at, 
you know, months with, with no income. You know, we've got, luckily we've got our commercial department is doing some work. Our VO department is, is booking stuff, but on the theatrical side, like there's just nothing. Like literally we're getting, you know, a handful of appointments here, a handful of appointments there. We actually just got a couple of series regular appointments this morning. So like things are percolating, but how real are they? But you know, that that's the thing is it at least gives us hope. And so for me, like that's what I cling to is if I can have hope, if I can have something to dream on a little bit, that really helps. Yeah. I feel like I look at, you know, like you're dressed right now. Like you, you've got the, the jacket on, you've got the, the shirt. I mean, to, to me, that's optimism kind of incarnate a little bit. I mean, we're all at home, you know, but to, to go through the ritual to actually get yourself right. ready for whatever the day may be and show up to it. Um, I mean, someone on the chat is pointing out, I don't know that, whether you're wearing pants or not. So maybe yeah, so I room. actually am because I'm terrified someone is going to ask me. I'm terrified <laughs> I'm going to have to like prove it. So I do wear, I do, I wear, I always have to. It's the full suit. <laughs> I do feel like it's, I feel like, look, I mean, whatever people need to do to feel comfortable getting through their day, I think that that's the, that's the thesis. That's the winner. But within that, there is something about that optimism of I'm going to show up for my day as, as much as I possibly can. And that might be, well, not in my case, shaving, but like it might be just putting on that shirt, taking that shower, deciding I'm going to work out that day. I like the idea that it's not because you have to do it, but out of a spirit of optimism, of a spirit of trying to be ready for something. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there's in many ways, there's a fine line between uh, uh, optimism and self-delusion. Um, but part of this is like how, like, it is like my body armor. Like, even on a day-to-day -day basis, the other agents in my office don't wear suits to work. I wear a suit every day, but to me, that's just part of how I do business. It's part of how I, th how I like prepare myself mentally and emotionally. Um, it really is. I, 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 I say body armor a lot, but it, it really is true. Like it feels like I'm suiting up for battle sometimes. Um, but yeah, that's been really important to me. Like I'm still waking up at 545 every morning. I'm still going on my run. I'm still working with my, 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 uh, fitness trainer, my fitness coach. Like to me, the routine has been really, really important. Um, so that's that, but that, you're right. That is part of it. Like if I had sort of given up, maybe I would, I don't even own sweatpants, but maybe I would be in sweatpants and, and, and unshaven. I don't know. But you know, it's also this idea of like, that's okay too. You know, I, I, I it, that's the other thing is I feel like there's this constant pressure to look or behave or act a certain way to come out with a skill to kind of, you know, like, I, I think we kind of buried that early, but there's still this idea, like you're losing ground if, if you're not doing these things. And I don't know that that's true. This is again, just sort of how I deal with it. The power of ritual, I feel like, because yeah. that gives structure to a day, and it's less, it's less about, well, I should learn Spanish and have a new, perfect demo reel that I shot entirely in my house, yeah. but more that I, I have something that I've created that, that feeds my soul to show up to. And yeah. you know, I've been doing the, the podcast for the studio for a while, and one theme that comes up again and again and again is that for people who find themselves stuck in their acting, almost always the route back for them is just finding some kind of ritual of creativity that often has no money associated with it. No one's ever going to see that work. Um, mm. But that's eventually the thing that just restores their soul. So that way, when that moment is there for them to create uh, in a larger scale or a more public scale, 
it, they feel ready and they feel excited to do it rather than it just being necessity or, or, or that job that's forcing yeah. them through it. That's interesting. I think the other thing that happens when you, when it's not ritual is then when you do do it, you're like forcing it. There's like all this pressure to come out with some sort of momentum or to come out with a product. Whereas if you are, if it is more routine, if it is something that you're sort of just investing time into putting money into the bank so that you have interest later on, um, I think that you can, you know, it, it, it just, it primes the engine. Uh, you know, I think, I think, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, what we were saying that like the, you know, the pandemic, the quarantine has really, it really kind of freezes what our habits are in time. Like what, the way you approach it, they, you, you really reveal yourself. Yeah. And, I mean, I think for me, you know, I've been wearing, uh, you know, my actress will say like, you know, I wear the same uniform almost every single day to teach. And now I'm usually, I'm, I still, I'm not wearing the same uniform. It's a little bit of a different uniform, but it, you know, I would feel naked without it. Like, what do I do? This is weird. Yeah. You know, but I think even people's habits regarding, you know, sleep patterns. I think the hardest part about this period is developing new habits. You know what I mean? It's a hard time to try to self-generate a habit. Like now I'm going to start practicing yoga, which I've never done in my entire life. Yeah. Or now I'm going to practice being loving to myself when I haven't been doing that for a very long time. I have started a grand total of three online classes, all of which I took one of the classes and that was it. Um, Cause I thought that same thing. I thought, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to jump. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to learn a new skill. I'm going to learn to speak Russian or I'm going to uh, take this Yale class or whatever. And after one, I was done because you're right. It's like starting something new. is just not, it's just not, feasible right now at least for me maybe some people they can pick it up but i think you know in a very authentic way we kind of are drilling down on like who we really are right now yes um you know so it really exposes the way your your thought pattern um but someone asked if it was the happiness class which it was not it was a different class but i know a lot of people have started that well i think it is like i think as far as starting habits just small ones you know small steps Yeah, I think it's also asking for help or asking for community because, boy, we are so isolated right now. But that's the whole basis for Actors Salon. That's the whole basis for a lot of what we do is let's get a group of people together and say, like, I don't know if I can do this on my own. But if I can check in with you and you can check in with me and maybe we can, when we're both having that hard day, be there to encourage the other person or say, it's okay. It's okay. Just don't quit long term. Um, but I do think it's kind of amazing when people are finding digital communities. I've seen people starting Facebook groups with their friends of just like, this will help me get up a little bit earlier. This will help me just find some kind of community and ritual to my day. I think it's hard to ask for help when we're so isolated. We know everyone's struggling right now. And there's also this, this idea of like, we, I keep saying like, if I knew when the end was, if I knew where the end of the tunnel was, even if it was one year from now, if you said one year from now, we will be done. That's a long time, but I've got something to look for. You know, I've got something to like make it to. We don't have a finish line. Like we don't. So it is this idea of like, you still got to show up. You still got to put in the steps. You still got to do all of this. And it's really difficult because you don't know how far you have to make it. And so, you know, I think people then also get a little bit afraid of like, 
spending the the token to get you know the 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 to call the friend now when I might need it in three months. And I think it's this idea of like understanding like this is for the long haul, and we're building we're building new routines. We're building. I think one of the th ways that we can come out stronger through this is this idea of asking for help when we need it um, and learning to be comfortable with that because that's a really vulnerable place, vulnerable place to be um, for all of us. You know, even me, like I've reached out to so many of my agent manager friends and, and casting directors and, and people that I know just like, you know, I'm having a panic attack, panic attack at four in the morning. I'm going to email and like, just like, just put it out and give it out. And it's really, tough because in many ways like that's my competition right so so to just make yourself vulnerable in that way can be very difficult and I think that's something we're having to come to terms with a little bit too is understanding like this is really a community for better or worse and you know we're, we're all sort of in this together for better or worse and we really have to find a way to unburden ourselves and to help each other out as much as possible there would there was a uh, an owner of another acting studio who reached out to me and normally acting studio owners remain very separate yeah. and i was so thrilled to talk and share and just talk about where we're at um like i needed it i needed yeah. some just like what's your experience what's mine and it was a it was it was just lovely and yeah. i i you know i think so many people feel alone i think this I, I really love what you're saying i love that you've reached out to even your competition to be like where are you how are you yeah. because sometimes yeah. we're you know we don't know what's real we don't know if our experience is you know we're yeah. alone sharing it and i mean i think that that's so nice you know we have a thing in our classes where we open up with uh we call it check-in and i've never found a more important time and check-ins just you share what's going on career-wise uh, you know, obviously, if there's a life thing that you really want to talk about, obviously, there's a lot more life now than career. Yeah. And I feel that the check-in is as valuable of, as any part of a class right now. Because to be heard, to be witnessed, to not be alone, to have people looking at you, um, it's so wildly important. And sometimes it's the last thing that we want to do. Yes. But when you finally actually do do it, you feel so rewarded by the end because you're like, whoa, it's so yeah. easy to forget that I have community. I have people that I can rely on and, you know, just to just to be a container at this moment. Right. And we have like these uh, uh, sort of backdoor tracking groups of the agents and managers and we share information and we ask questions, you know, just among each other. And so it's been really interesting to see those groups sort of turn into uh, still sharing information, but sharing information on like how to file for, for unemployment, how to get small business loans, like those sorts of things. Like where have you, what banks have you heard from? Like who, where are we out in this process? So, you know, it is interesting because it's also like not just building new networks, but seeing those, the networks we already have sort of transform in that way too. Um, and just people showing vulnerability there because again, we are competition, you know, and, and not that there's a lot you can do with that now anyway, but um, you know, it's, it's still really hard. And I think, agents in particular, like we're really like, our job is collecting information. Our job is having, you know, exclusive access to as much information as we can. So sharing is already a bit anathema to the job. Um, and then like, so, so to let your guard down and sort of, you know, be 
open with, with your competition in that way is, is very difficult or it can be. It's hard, but it, the funny thing is the thing that I keep relearning again and again, especially with clients is the people who we feel like are our competition also understand our lives better than anyone else in the whole planet. I mean, the, yeah. the, whoever your competitor agents are, they know what it is like to have a roster of clients who know what it, the, this current business climate is. But this is the same thing for actors, the people who we see in the same audition rooms who we feel jealous of all the time. Like those are the people who know what our lives are like. They are, they are in certain ways our closest community. And one thing I do feel thankful about during this time is it's made it easier to really shift that focus to seeing them as my tribe rather right. than these people who somehow through like my choices I need to slay in an audition room. It's just, it's, it's, it's a much more comforting feeling and I hope that I can retain that going forward. You know, that there are going to be lessons we can learn that will make us all better, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that it's, it's, um, it has definitely changed the way that I view a lot of, uh, a lot of people, but you're right. There's not like uh, the, the, a lot of the people that we see as competition and even like in the agent side, because, you know, people switch companies all the time. People move around all the time. So it's in many ways, they're not, really our competition right like it's like this very sort of uh closed community of people who who don't really understand my i have a friend who is no longer an agent but she used to say uh this is like a unicorn job um it's like you you get to take care of a unicorn and, and you tell your friends back home like oh i'm a unicorn keeper and they think oh wow you have this magic job you get to take care of this majestic beast with the silver horn and it does magic and but you as the keeper are like yeah but i also have to clean up its poop and i have to like get this special diet like you have to put in like all of this work to it but no one else really understands that part so the agents like we understand picking up unicorn poop um so in many ways like it is nice to have that group that you can kind of talk to about that kind of stuff so yeah i'm so intrigued by something you said we said you know I, I share it. You said you want to work with people that you like, Yeah. you know, and now I work with a lot of different people and, you know, my favorite ones are ones that share that. And, and I agree. I mean, I'm that way. Like, you know, we have a thing called, we have a consultation where I basically am meeting people and, you know, fortunately they're, you know, majority of people are lovely human beings, but like one of the things I look for, when you're coming in, it's not if you're good, like it's not about whether you're green or not green, it's do you like connecting? Do you aspire to connect? And do you actually, is it not about like booking a job? Is it about being really good at what you do? I just wanna feel like I am, uh, I wanna be the best version of myself as a human and as an artist. Yeah, I so, love that. I was just, well, at the end of the day, I can't control if you get a job. Right. I can help you be in a place where you you can book the job because your work's ready. And I right. think if you can like yourself as a person, then you can walk into that room and people are like, who is this fucking person? Right. You know, like they, they're right. bringing their party in. I was just wondering for you, how, when you have a tough time with someone, is it challenging to pass on them when you know that they could make you a lot of money? Yeah, um, it is. I actually just had this experience a couple of months ago coming into pilot season. Someone who tests every year, who does, who's done really well. He was referred to me by, by one of my, uh, by a manager friend. And I felt really like honored that he had sent him to me. 
and we had met, and it was very clear in the room that this guy knows what he's doing. Um, he's very good at it. Like, there's a reason he he does as well as he does. But like, I just didn't connect with him. I didn't really like him. Like, I kept thinking about like on a Thursday night when I'm when it's eight o'clock and I'm trying to get out of the office and I've been there since eight in the morning and I've got to put out that one last phone call and it's this guy. Like, I'm gonna be so mad when I have to call this guy. Like, I'm just gonna want to go home or I'm gonna want to put him off onto my assistant. Like, those sorts of things were just like. And that's not fair to him either because someone else is going to get it. Someone else is going to see him. Someone else is going to feel what he brings to the table and, and connect with him. And I also think like it's really hard the way that I pitch. I have to go out to a casting director or to a network executive or to a showrunner. And I have to say, listen, you're going to love having this person on set. They're going to bring great value to your project. They're going to like grow with you. Like I have to advocate for them. And if I can't, say that I like them, then how am I going to, because here's the thing you and I know both know like this careers are built on repeat business. It's built on the same people liking you and working with you again and again and again. All of our favorite actors worked with the same directors, worked with the same producers, the cast casting directors fight for and advocate for them and call them in over and over and over again, whether they're booking or not. And if you can't build that connection, then I don't know how you're going to build anything sustainable. One and of so, my, uh, yeah, no, I was going to say, what, uh, please, did I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, not at um, all. No, one of my teachers, he was a, a regular on a CW show and his good, his dear friend is a showrunner of a new show. And he was talking about in class how, how the showrunner had told him that the conversation with like the, you know, the, the network and everybody and discussing actors, how many actors got eliminated because of experience, like during that conversation, people that she liked, but she didn't know, like actors that she liked and thought yeah. about, and they're like, absolutely not. Yep. Like, you don't want to work with them. You can't get them there on time. They'll give you attitude. They may be good, but they create a bad set, yeah. and your life will be bad for seven years. It happens all the and time. Got, and they get eliminated like that. So it's a great thing for everybody. Please be a good human. Well, yeah. it's a thing that you can use this time for rather than worrying about is your, is your demo as perfect as it needs to be or are you hitting every open call? Are you figuring out how to take care of yourself? So when yeah. this does end, are you going to be somebody who is in touch with some degree of empathy, compassion, dare I say joy? Um, like, can you find those things? Because those are the things that I do think will be in short supply when the world comes back. We're going to have a lot of people who might have a great demo, but are very desperate or are very stressed. Yeah. And that can be, I don't know. I think that's a, it's a thing to make a, out of a goal rather than something so uh, mundane as something like an audition. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, I feel like we should talk about it a little bit. Um, LA County today announced that we're going to be most likely staying at home for another three months. And I've seen that shown up uh, in the Q and A in the chat. And I'm just curious for both of you, um, how do you feel about that? And, and what is that going to do to your life and your job? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll start. I, I actually just heard that in a phone call right before this. Um, a manager friend uh, mentioned that, that that had just been announced. You know, the thing for me is we've, I've had this anxiety anywhere uh, or, or for a while about like, 
going back to the office, right? Like I'm still going in once or twice a week, but it's just me. One of the other partners might be milling around somewhere, like just like ships passing in the night. But, you know, it's pretty empty. And this idea of like jumping back in and jump, even going outside is such a chore right now, such, such an emotional uh, chore to just go to the store. Um, and so to me, this, it's, it gives me anxiety, to be honest with you, because at some point we do have to earn money. Um, we have to find a way to, to, to make income. When, I, when, I, when this all started, I had 13 people out on, because I do a lot of theater, I had 13 people on production contracts, either Broadway or national tours. We had three people set to open on Broadway within the next, I think, three days. Um, we had a lot going on, and, and to one by one sort of systematically see every contract push every single one to see, you know, uh, we have series still in the air. We're still waiting for word on, we have, you know, all of these things. And so this idea of like, you know, it's going to be three months. It's just putting into words what we all kind of know, which is that this is going to be a long haul and it's going to be hard to, to get through this. And I think every time that that has some sort of tangible, uh, uh, representation, like, it's going to be the end of July now. Like it's really like it, that's when we can't ignore it anymore. Right. Like now we have to come to terms with it. It's really difficult for me. And it's really difficult because not only do I have to earn an income, but I've got, you know, 72 clients who need to earn an income also. And I have to find a way to help them sort of exist in that time until then, because I do have, I do feel a great responsibility towards them. So it's tricky, but you know, if it was July, it was July. And if it was August, it was August. And you know, I doubt this is the end of it. So it's, uh, it, it is coming to terms with it, but you know, it's, there's, there's no great thing to it really. It's just hard. How do you feel about it, John? I mean, it's new, new information we're all getting today, but. I felt a wave of, I mean, I felt a big wave of anxiety. Um, that I kind of let wash over me, uh, and then it will return. Um, but you know, as an owner of a studio who tries to take care of a lot of people and, you know, you're in with overhead and all that, you know, you start to get into owner mode of just trying to make sure you can strategize and think of what things look, you can go through multiple scenarios. Um, I think that, listen, I think everyone's, you know, I, I know with my wife, uh, you know, we also have a child who were, you know, homeschooling. So, you know, I think that, as I said earlier, the pendulum swings. Like, I'm sure at one point tonight, I'll be a little bit like, we're all good. It's going to be fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start to, your, your brain just starts to go, you know, it just starts ticking. You start thinking. So I kind of try to allow for that. Like I had a tough day yesterday and I just kind of, I knew it would be a tough, it just was a tough day, you know? And then you just allow yourself to feel it and then hope that, you know, you just say, I'll go to sleep and I'll wake up and I'll be refreshed. And I did, I woke up refreshed. So I try not to take my thoughts too seriously right now. You know, I think everyone's, a, listen, everyone has a different experience, you know, right now. It's like you, you, I think people that own companies have a lot of different things that they're thinking about right now, you know, and, you know, people who have lost their jobs waiting tables, uh, you know, even if they're getting unemployment, 
like, sure, they're fine. They're like, yes, they're grateful, but they're also worried about, are they going to have their jobs back? You know, if they're working a bar, like, is that bar ever going to open? So, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, it goes, um, it just, it can swing really fast. And I think, you know, as long as you're, and this is my mantra is I know I'm going to be okay. So as long as I can return to my mantra, I'm going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We'll figure it out. I just have to trust and have faith that we'll figure it out as it comes. And as much as we want to plan ahead, like the, basically the worst thing you could ever do as an actor, you just like, it's like, it's like connecting, just, you know, be moment to moment, you'll figure it out. So I just try to go back to that. Is it successful? Not, not, not I would say 50-50 right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with that, that batting average, though, you're going to get into the Hall of Fame with that batting average. 50-50 is not so That's bad. right. I mean, that's better than Ted Williams right there, so. So I feel like that oh. outlook is going to. I like that. Is, by the way, what, I have to say, I'm a, are you a big baseball fan? I am. I'm you, viewing the picture back there, too. What is that picture Who is behind that? you? Um, this is, uh, so I'm a Houston Astros fan. This is a guy named Tom Cochran who is from Riverside. I was actually in, uh, Riverside at an, at a, uh, like a, an archive, like, um, um, an antique store. And he had all these signed pictures at the store. So, uh, I bought them. And so I have them. I also have the, the, I don't know if you can see the Astros tin bank and the yeah. cap, but yeah, huge baseball fan, huge hiking fan. Uh, yeah, but I'm like, I'm an Astros fan, but I'm also just like a baseball fan. So, uh, so I like follow, I go to college games. I go to high school games. Wow. Minor league games. I'm kind of obsessive about it. Wait, will you just randomly appear at a high school game by yourself? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. He's scouting. He's scouting. Well, I, in a way I am. But it's always like, but it's like, like, like hot prospects, right? Like people who are like going to be like drafted. Like a couple of years ago, I would go to J.P. Crawford's game, who plays for the the Seattle Mariners now. Like I would go to his games, um, or I would go to like uh, Rio Ruiz's games. Like these high profile prospects. I don't know. I just like just don't, just don't pop up at t-ball games. No, not yet. <laughs> yeah, that'd not yet. be bad until they're until they're scouting them. Um, <laughs> but when I was so my background is I was a music director in musical theater and I traveled all the time. And so one thing I always connected to was baseball. So while I was like out on the road, if I'm in Clinton, Iowa, I would want to go to a baseball game. So I would go to the Clinton Lumber Kings game. Um, and so when I was in these like tiny little areas, I just I just love the sport so i would just go to games and so yeah so i'll go to college i'll go to high school not a lot of high school but sometimes and you saw that they're agreed they agreed uh major league baseball agreed that they would have an 82 game season that would be starting in july just with I no saw the owners agreed I, the owners agreed if the players had signed off on it yeah, the players, ha- they're bringing it to the players right now. And I'm fascinated by it because if they can figure out how to do, you know, 30 different baseball teams flying around the country, yeah, makes me think you could figure out something for some type of production. It just, in terms of just a business model, it feels like you could replicate it. So yeah, I don't think they would that. do that. I think they would keep it all local. Like they're everyone not. would be hanging around. No? Well, so no, they had talked about doing it all in Arizona, but the players were like, I don't want to be away from my family for, for six right. months or for whatever. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah. I mean, that was the plan. I think the owners came up with was it was 
it was going around the country. So we'll see. Yeah, basketball's talking about doing the bubble, like in Orlando or something, where it would just be everyone has to stay there. But I think for baseball, they're saying that if your state and your county allows a certain amount to be open, then that stadium would be open for players and staff and all that stuff. But it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, I think, as a way of looking at our industry, because what you are seeing is there's a lot of people who are incentivized to try to make this work. And if they can, they're going to be showing us a path forward. And there's a lot of really good information. And if they can't, that's going to be hard. But I think it will also be helpful to put some minds at ease of, well, are we going back to work? Are we not? What would that look like? And yeah. seeing somebody trailblaze, I think it's nice to, it's also nice to just be distracted. Yeah, <laughs> um, are, exactly. are you hearing anything about pragmatics of how sets might happen in any realistic way? I mean, I see some stuff on deadline. We see yeah. those like, this is a liquid document being created just yeah. to be shared. Um, but is there anything you're yeah. hearing? I'm sure a lot of people are curious. I'm seeing the same things you're seeing. Um, I'm seeing the deadline articles. I mean, I, I talked to, like I said, I talked to some of my showrunner friends. I talked to some of my uh, producer friends and it's the same, you know, it's the same ideas of like Tyler Perry may open or this may happen. We may be quarantining actors for two weeks. So, I, you know, until there's something real and tangible, um, it's just, I just don't put too much stock into any of it because I think it's all great. Uh, I think the idea of quarantining, you know, a cast and crew for two weeks is wonderful. I don't know who's paying for their time. I don't know who's, you know, who's sort of handling all of that. Like, that's the part I don't hear about. So until there's some sort of, and the thing for me is like, I think what a lot of people forget is that this industry is really run by production, by, I'm sorry, by insurance companies. And so I don't know what insurance company is going to, to uh, bond a production that can close at a moment's notice if one person tests positive. So I think that's the biggest hurdle to overcome. We can all want it as much as possible. We can all have super creative decisions, but until the money people sign off on it, you know, it's just not really uh, uh, feasible. So I'm kind of just waiting to see how that's going to happen. And I think, you know, I, it's funny because you'll see some people say like, oh, I think indies will move faster because they have fewer people. But the truth of the matter is like indies have less money. So how are they going to quarantine people? How are they going to self-isolate? So it's just like, it's this conversation about, you know, where's the money, which right. unfortunately is such a huge part of our industry. Um, but it is a really important part of our industry. So I, I think that that's kind of, not only that, but you can't, you know, television production is one thing, but you can't put a movie in a cinema. No one can go see it. Right. So, you know, unless you're like releasing to Netflix or doing some sort of, you know, uh, uh, straight to video, straight to, to uh, straight to the consumer version, I, I, I just don't know how you put it all together. So luckily I don't have to have those conversations. I don't have to be part of that, but you know, I have checked in periodically with producer friends with, you know, with people at, at studios with even at, at, streamers and, and, and cable studios and like no one really there's nothing that seems like imminent um so there's it's all just talk at this point from what i can tell one of our clients you know one of my client shows just got picked up today and i was just intrigued how they delivered that information we will start someday yeah hey, that's yeah. it i have a question uh and maybe I'm also making a political statement. Uh, what is your reaction when you see someone walking around without a mask? 
I have a real hard time with that, to be honest with you. Yes. I, yeah, it's, um, I'm a runner. So I go out in the morning and I'm running and I'm putting my buff over my face. I'm huffing and puffing. I've, I've actually limited it because I have so many major streets around me. So I literally have changed my, my running path to go around the exact same block dozens of times over and over and over again, just so I don't have to like deal with unmasked people or running in traffic. Like it's, it's sort of, uh, that's sort of the choice I'm being forced to make. It's really problematic for me. And even like, I already have a bit of like anxiety about all of it anyway. Like I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little, I'm sort of edgy, uh, or on edge. So even like, I just don't, my thing is like, I don't care what you think the rules should be. I don't know why we can't just follow what they are. Like you can fight, you can complain, you can protest, but like when you're out, wear the mask. I I don't understand the problem. And so to me, that's sort of the thing where it's just like, I, 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 it's not even like, disrespectful to to authority figures it's disrespectful to me it's disrespectful to you it's disrespectful to the people around you and I I just have such a problem with that attitude of like I'm gonna do what I want to do no despite everyone else and again I mentioned earlier I'm a hiker and the trails open on Saturday and I did not go out I've been itching to go out but like I'm terrified of everybody I'm terrified of people make who have made bad decisions and who are being selfish in a way that I just cannot fathom putting other people in danger in that way. Well, those people who have interpretations about their rights and that's taking away their freedoms, it stems from something. I don't know what, from maybe being formally oppressed or something. Uh, But I think people should take, I take great pride in wearing a mask. And when I see people without masks, I think you're the one delaying it. You're going to be the one delaying our opening. That's you. right. And yep. not just because you have the, like you probably, maybe you don't have, it's not you have it, but you are sending the signal. That's I right. mean, that's to me why it's so d- dangerous that you know who just refuses to wear a mask. What it would do for America if our president would just come on in front of the camera and wear a mask would be huge. It would be yep. signaling to people, this is important. Value the other person as m- much as you value yourself. Please. And I, rem- I remember the first press conference, I remember vividly the first press conference where Eric Garcetti put his on. Um, and, you know, listen, I was not a huge Eric Garcetti fan coming into all of this, but I think he's done really well uh, for, you know, the situation he's been dealt. And I remember just how impactful it was to see him put that on. Now, listen, I've, I already had masks. I've had masks since February. I have fashionable masks because, you know, <laughs> I have to. I have masks that go with each suit. Um, but like for me, it is, it is this idea of, can we just be nice to each other? We don't have to agree. We don't have to, you know, it's like the, I've seen other people make this, this comment, but also like, uh, like this idea of, you know, you can't go to a store without a shirt on. So why is that? not oppressive, but not being able to wear a mask is it's just so weird to me. And it's people taking these weird moral stances. And I'm from Ohio. So I still got my half of my Facebook feed is crazy people who are, you know, really aggressive about this. And it's, it's just very strange to me because it's like, I don't think you really think this. I think you've been told you think this. And so you're acting in accordance with that. It feels like it's definitely an emotional reaction. And not one rooted in 
uh, I don't know, logic. Yeah. 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 Cause that's my thing is like, what if you're wrong? I think I, I make, <laughs> I, 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 I tie that into every decision I ever make, you know, like what if I'm wrong? God bless that answer. Thank you for that. I can be 200% sure that I'm right. I've got a friend I mentioned on my Facebook wall who I knew in high school. She barely passed 11th grade biology and she hasn't been in a class since. And yet she's convinced that she knows more than the nation's preeminent uh, doctor of virology. Like it's just such a weird sort of like uh, 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 sureness, like self sureness that I don't really understand because um, I have never been that sure of anything that I am willing to literally risk people's lives on the chance that I'm right. That's crazy to me. Well, because I think, you know, I, I'm like you in that, like, I will often go, what if I'm wrong? And like, until I am so certain I am right, I will live in the, let's give, let's be reasonable. Like you probably have a point, which makes me feel that much more assured when I've made it a decisive decision. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that's also a mark of someone who's okay living in a little bit of, I don't know. I don't know. You know? And I think a lot of, like Brene Brown says, you know, like judgment and blame, you know, what is it? It's like the, the. Oh, it's like anticipation of fear and pain. Yeah. Yeah. Fear and pain or something. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of that certainty comes from. Right. And it's, 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 it's interesting because yeah, it's this idea of, of just, uh, I don't know. It's wild to me. I've always, I was always taught by, by one of my mentors, one of my first jobs that until you, you have to be able to argue both sides Right. of an issue before you can choose which one is yours. Totally. And I think that that has made me very uh, conscious. Like when I do choose a side, like I have weighed it all out. I can tell you everything that's wrong with that side and everything that's right with that side. Um, and I just don't think that that, I don't want to, I don't want to be the guy who's so cynical and says, you know, uh, critical thinking isn't taught in schools and people like this and people like that. Cause I don't, that makes it sound like I think I'm, that I'm better than people, which I really don't. But ultimately I do think that I'm very good at, I'll just rather err on the side of caution. If my options are, uh, give up a little bit of freedom is wearing a mask really giving up much freedom, but okay. So giving up a little bit of freedom at the exchange of like possibly saving lives. Like that's a real no brainer for me. It's a real strange, it's a strange thing to sort of stake as your battleground. I think. I think a lot of it has to do with how mundane it can seem. I don't know. As a kid, I would always imagine putting myself in these like life or death situations. Like what would I do if someone threatened my whole family and all I had to do was some heroic act. I never thought my wildest dreams, oh, the way you save your grandmother is that you stay at home for five months straight and when you go outside, you wear a mask and you, yeah. you don't get to like go to a bar for a while. Like that, there's just, there's not a lot of <laughs> yeah. fireworks in that. And I think people have trouble with the discipline of it. Um, yeah. We, we are nearing the end as my drink would show. Um, and I feel like we have a couple like uh, questions from the group and I do want to, I do want to hit some of theirs real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so from, from the, from the team, um, Emily asks, you mentioned that, um, you're fortunate to be working, you know, long days right now. Um, the question is, what are you doing during the quarantine as an agent? Like, what is that work? What does your day to day look like right now? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's a little bit different. I'm me- I'm doing a lot of client meetings, a lot of client outreach. Um, we always put some things off, some projects off 
during uh, pilot season, so it's a lot of catching up on that stuff. Um, I do, as I mentioned earlier, just a metric ton of scouting. So we've got all these sort of systems in place that like, I don't necessarily have a full team right now. Like my, everyone in our department is sort of dealing with this in their own way. So, you know, I'm picking up a lot of like, I don't want to say slack, but you know, a lot of like what one person isn't able to necessarily bring today, like I'll pick up. So those sorts of things, I mean, it's surprising. I mean, first of all, when I'm at home, everything takes four times as long. So it's not as if I'm just got a stacked day from 9.30 to 6.30. But like, it is like a lot of meetings, a lot of outreach, a lot of these Q&As and panels and those sorts of things. Um, even submissions, like we're doing a, a, mod, a fairly a robust number of submissions, whether they turn into anything or not is anyone's guess. A lot of things keep getting pushed, but you know, it is still keeping me pretty busy. It's, I mean, that sounds busy. Um, yeah. Where was this question? Um, oh, uh, Talisa wonders, is now a time to be seeking representation in different markets to widen your net of opportunities? Or would you say that now most, I mean, obviously you can't speak for anyone who's not you, so I don't expect that. But as like a general strategy, is now the time to try to widen the net of opportunities or to take a pause on pitching yourself as a new client? Yeah, a little bit I can speak to that. So I'm, I'm taking meetings. I have met with a few people, um, especially because there are a lot of agents getting furloughed and laid off right now. So like there's some really good talent that's floating around in the world. Um, we one in our agent manager tracking groups, a lot of people are expressing surprise and disappointment that they are getting so many emails. So not everyone is able to hear that. Not everyone is able to sort of process that you're reaching out. Um, I do think most people are of the mindset. We all, I think, prefer to work than to not work. I think the one downside to it is I don't like to enter into a relationship when we're certain that the first three or four months is going to be a bust. Um, that, you know, we could, there's work we can do in that time, but we're not going to book together because there's nothing to book. And so that, the, we always say that the, the way that the relationship begins is the way it will end. And so it's very difficult to sort of go in with the expectation that like, we're just going to sit around for three months and figure it out together. So I think to me, sure, reach out, you know, try to build your, your, your network, try to build your team. If you feel that that's necessary, I've never been a big regional agent guy, to be honest with you. I think, you know, this is Los Angeles. This is where the, this is where the large roles are cast. Um, if you want to expand your regional roster to expand your opportunities, why not? I mean, what have you got to lose at the end of the day? Like worst case scenario, someone doesn't respond or someone curses you out for even emailing, which seems unlikely, but also then you know that that's not the person for you anyway. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, Edward just said he'd be terrified to be in Georgia right now. I agree. Um, but you know, I think that, that it is this idea of like, and this is something I preach all the time. And so this is something I think is important to hear is like, don't go into these, like, I do a lot of these Q and A's and so many of the questions are just like, is it okay to, and is this a good time to like, what does it matter? Do it, do what you need to do. Like, get after your, like pursue your truth, pursue your vision, build your career. And like the people that deserve to be on board with that, the people who respond to the way you do business, they're going to respond to that. And if they don't, 
then they weren't for you anyway. They weren't your tribe anyway. So to me, I think that that's, I see a lot of like permission asking and I would really encourage you to like try to shift the paradigm, like really go after what you want and the people who gravitate towards you are going to gravitate towards you regardless. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, there's the rule of, of the, like the rule of marketing is I, I guess the thing is make them opt out. Let them opt out. That's okay. Absolutely. We say that all the time in submissions too. Like, like a, a breakdown will say like handsome, like, listen, all of my clients are handsome to me. They're all beautiful. They're all attractive. I'm going to submit you and casting can agree or disagree, but I'm not going to make the decision for them. Right. Right. <laughs> I like that. Um, Jeff has a question. Um, uh, agents will talk about pitching their clients, but with all agents pitching, how crowded is the pitch field? How important is it that your agent know exactly how to pitch you? I mean, I think it's important. I think that it's, I mean, we're in sales at the end of the day. Like my job is, is primarily sales. There's some sort of like relationship management with it too, but it is about building trust. I can pitch all day long, but when's the last time you got an unsolicited uh, email pitching a product to you and you bought it? It's pretty rare, right? Oh, so, it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but that's literally the job we're asked to do. So what we do is we build trust. So, you know, if I call a casting director, I'm like, you have to see this person. If you see one person in, that's not already on your list, you have to see this person. That person has to deliver. So I have to be really smart, A, how I pitch, B, when and to whom I pitch. And listen, we're all going to like miss opportunities because people have finite time. They can only see so many actors. Like not every pitch is going to turn into anything. Uh, but then when it does turn into something, you have to convert. So the question is, you know, how, how difficult does it become? I think it becomes very difficult. We're all pitching all the time. Um, well, maybe not all. I think most of us are pitching a lot. But the pitching is sort of incidental to the relationship building. And so when, like I've worked with, with one manager comes to mind. I won't mention names. But when I first called her, we, she, she wanted to sign one of my clients. And I was just like, great, let's, let's grab lunch. And she's like, who has time for lunch? And it told me immediately, like, okay, we just don't do business the same way. Like you're not a relationship builder. Like, so like to me, she can pitch all she wants, but I doubt she's getting appointments. You know what I mean? Because no one likes her. So at the end of the day, like people have to kind of like you, you have to be personable. It's, it's, it's charisma. It's, it's sales. It's, it's, um, so it's not like this magic button of how to pitch. And listen, we have, we are constantly refining the way we pitch, um, we're constantly like reevaluating how we pitch and the format and, and all of that. But it's all sort of incidental to like, they have to like me. They have to, to want to see my people. They have to want to have that conversation with me or else, you know, I'm just going into a folder somewhere. Um, can I ask a couple of questions, Brian? Please, please jump in. Uh, one, I've never done this before. This is also to tease next week. Next week we have Dylan Brander coming on. You know, that was a good yeah. tease, John. That was uh, an organic. Dylan Brander is well the VP of ABC Casting. Is that right? VP uh, for uh, ABC Studios. Yeah. Been a, lot, a friend for years. Is there, Anthony, is there any question you would want me to ask her? Um, I love her. First of all, uh, first, just ask her how I'm doing, how she's doing. Tell her I said, hi. Okay. I don't think that there's any specific question. I think, you know, at the network club, because she was in the trenches for a long time. I mean, Brandman Brander, and then just off on her own. Um, she's really seen a lot. So I think she's the kind of a person that you can ask, like, just how, 
have things changed? How have, how have you seen the industry, you know, like the direction the industry has taken since she started? Because to me, that's going to inform, that's the information that I don't necessarily have. Like I can hear it all that I want, but I think to know where we're going to go next, it helps to know where we've been. Um, and I think she may have a particularly good insight on that, but you know, no specific question. Also, just to share, Dylan was for a little while the starting pitcher of the JRS softball team. She was. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, a little bit of trivia. Um, Amazing. Uh, so, Brian, I felt I, I just wanted to tease that a little bit. Um, uh, and how, how excited are we that we both have the same barber, Anthony? <laughs> Doesn't that nature, make life? Mother Nature is my barber. Yeah. I, but it makes it so much easier. I've, all the time, I've never been happier for being bald. I mean, my God. I feel yeah. so happy. I, I had been growing out a beard. I grew it out for the playoffs, for the baseball playoffs. And then it was winter. So I was like, oh, I'll just keep it. And then it was pilot season. And we were doing well. So I'm like, I just, I don't want to shave it. And literally like a week ago, I shaved all of this off. Or less than a week. Maybe Friday or something. I shaved all of this off. So... I do now. I am my own barber, so I did, it was pretty full. Uh, but to, but to go back to the casting thing, I did want to say, you know, in in today's life, I'm sure it's even more important for them to be trusting you and have a good relationship with you because it's so much harder. Like there, there's less sessions, yeah. and at this point, I'm sure just you've got to be just as certain. You've got to be certain because you know it, it is about sustaining that level, that relationship. Because basically, you you need your time to be used well. The, the reps need their time. I do have a question. Since, since you probably have to curate even more these days, mm -hmm. do you find that you're watching your clients' tapes even more like closely uh, when you were you to submit a self-tape? To some extent, I've, we've always been pretty diligent about like really getting in and watching them. You know, the problem is I'm not an acting teacher. I'm not an acting coach. I don't really have that vernacular. Um, all I know is whether or not I'm interested, mm -hmm. um, which is at the end of the day, the, the, the most important rubric, right? But, it, but I don't know how to tell them to like fix it. So I have some clients who are really good at translating Anthony into actor. Um, but for the most part, it's it's been... We, again, I, I preach this to a lot of people, but I feel like you have to find a way because in the, in the era of self-tapes, there's this idea of like an infinite number of takes. Um, and I think people get lost in the weeds and they kind of oh, get yeah. lost in their own head. And so I say like, give yourself three takes. If you can't get to it in three takes, work on the fact that you can't get to it in three takes. But like, give me your third take then. Like, get, me, like, get to it and do it and, 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 and throw it at me because to me I can that's what I can usually tell is when someone is just like lost in it where it's just like they're overthinking it and uh you know it's it's there's an actress I've been talking to for a few years Jen DeBella she's actually in the chat and like we've had that conversation where it's just like if you can't get at it then it's time to like step back and like just breathe just let it happen like because the idea is like oh my competition is doing it a thousand times. I need to do it a thousand times. But the truth is like one of your first takes is probably one of your better takes. And if it is the 20th take fine, but it, it seems like that's a problem. And if you're on set and it takes you 20 takes, uh, you're not going to make a lot of friends. So like really work on getting to it and getting, and, and getting into it as quickly as possible. I think. Well, I mean, I have to say one thing that I've had to do as a teacher, because I, I have a rule for me that I won't send out a tape if I don't think it represents you well. Mm -hmm. So 
there have been times where they're so afraid to call their manager or agent. So I'll call them and just yeah. say, hey, we're not getting it. Can we, can, can we push it? And, yeah. and I think sometimes reps are so afraid to tell their rep that. Yeah. Where I, but every time I've called, they have been welcome to hear it. They have been like saying, yeah. hey, you know, is it okay if we take that extra day? And, you know, I'd say 99% of the time I hear it, yes. And again, I can't speak for all reps. I can't speak for all agents, managers. But I can tell you that the group that I know, the group that I work with, we love actors. We, we came into this because we want to lift them up. We want to put them in a position to show their best work. And so anytime, I mean, nine times out of ten when we give a deadline – it's sort of a fake deadline anyway because we need time to turn it around and we know that things can happen on the tech side. Like lots of things can go wrong. And so we kind of build in a buffer. Sure. But also like we don't want to send bad work. We don't want you to send bad work. And I think for us, it really becomes about like I would love to receive that phone call. Honestly, I would love to get that, um, that feedback, which is like I'm just not getting there. But the other thing I would say like is – Again, it kind of gets into this idea of, of permission asking, right? It gets into this idea of like you work for us um, or that you have to like answer to us. I just don't see it that way. To me, like you really have to have a vision and like certain actors are going to nail certain scenes and they're not going to nail certain scenes. I want people pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. I want people really getting after things that aren't that they can't just get to immediately. So the idea of like putting in work and stretching yourself is very appealing to me personally. And so to me, I kind of, I kind of like the idea of sending people auditions that they need a, a little bit of extra time on um, just because it means that we are pushing them out of what they're used to doing. So I think for me, it's regardless, you just have to self advocate. You really have to, whether it's correct or not, um, if you need more time, if you don't feel comfortable with the work you've done, then you don't feel comfortable with the work you've done. Um, whether I can get you more time or not is incidental. Like you don't want to send bad work because you didn't have enough time. So ask, make the ask, self-advocate, put yourself out there, really get after it. I think that that's, to me, it, it ties back into that permission asking uh, sensibility where it's just like, I just want people really fighting for themselves as much as possible, especially with the rep because you really – need to feel like your rep has your back. I just think it's so important. And if they don't, if they're not on the team, I get that a lot of people sign with rep just because they need, they think they need to sign with rep. But at the end of the day, if they don't see you, if they don't share your vision, I, I don't think that it's super beneficial to have anybody. Well, I, you know what you said? Uh, it's interesting. I think that I, this one actor has been a series regular on a show for about six years. And so sometimes we'll self-tape, uh, I'll tape her on stuff where she has to be very emotional, which is what she is on her show. And she can knock that out like nobody's business. And I'll never forget that like she had to go in for some like Marvel movie where it was the opposite of every muscle she had been using for the last six years. And she hit a wall. No matter what, she just was ha really having a tough time taking the note. But one thing I love that she said was, wow, I need some work on this. Like, yeah. this is going to take me some time. But yeah. she did not internalize it. She was not thinking, I'm a bad actress. She was just basically saying, I'm a professional basketball player who's being asked to play baseball. Right. And I have not been playing baseball. I need some practice at my baseball. Yeah. And or it's I like when, when Adam Dunn was asked to lay down a bunt. 
Like he's a slugger. He hits home runs. Right. It's the same thing. But I love that that was her reaction and not like, uh, I can't do this. Right. And I think too often what happens is like you, you were saying, um, to what happens, people conflate having a difficult time with a particular set of sides with, okay, well, I guess I'm bad. Rather than being like, these are muscles that are atrophied. These are not muscles I've been working on. And I think that that really is that. And you said something earlier where you're just like, okay, great. Now you know what you need to work on. Like if you're having trouble with these sides, rather than getting deflated, get inspired. Because like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll up my sleeves and make this my thing for the next while. Because right. I want this to be a second nature. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing is like, we all know like superficially or like we all know that this is a lifelong pursuit, right? No one is a perfect actor. Like it's, it's never going to happen where you're able to knock out everything. So why beat yourself up if there's a set of sides that you can't nail right away? Work on that, you know, find that thing that like, okay, this is what I need to work on. It's what I need to call John and get in class and like do, you know, coach on. And, and that's the thing too, is just like, yeah, I think when you get into this industry, if you sign with a reputable agent, reputable manager, like you're good. The bar is really high uh, just to get in the door. And so, you know, your competition is all very good. So now it just becomes about like finding the right stories to, to, to tell and then also trying to widen how many of the stories are the right stories. So, you know, really being true to your art, but then also like trying to expand yourself as a person and trying to, to sort of figure out like how to tell stories uh, more efficiently and just more stories. I don't know if you're watching the ESPN Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. I've been loving it. But one thing that I find so amazing is seeing someone who is the best at what they did ever regularly saying, I need to add this to what I do. This is how I get better. Because so often when, when we're teaching class, there's this idea, you can see it in some people's eyes, that the idea that you might need to add something to your work, to your craft, somehow implies that you're bad rather than we just want you to be better at more things. I mean, you brought up Adam Dunn. That guy could only do three things, home run, strike out, or walk. Like, walk yeah. That was it. If he'd, add, if he'd added the ability to like hit for contact, think about what could have happened for that guy. Yeah. And I think just the idea of adding two skill sets isn't equal to some kind of negative, that that's actually what professionals with a lifelong career do. I mean, we're all going to age. Our types are all going to change. The type of stories we're going to tell are going to change and that's that's part of the beauty of getting a lifelong career and part of the fun i think yeah and i think so many actors really focus too much on like am i allowed to uh how do i do this or how do i like 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 just this idea of like what am i allowed to do or how am i allowed to do things and less on like themselves less on like how do i like expand myself as a human being how do i you know translate that into the work. I think to me, the thing I asked, mo- I asked my actors to do the most is really just drill down on who you are. And this is a lifelong pursuit, by the way, like even I'm an agent, right? But like, I'm constantly refining. I talked earlier about how our pitch process, like we're really good, but like we are constantly bouncing ideas off of each other and refining and changing how we do it because you don't want it to be formulaic. You don't want it to be, you know, you like, like you want everything to have like meat to it, have authenticity to it. You know, it's the same thing with acting. It's the same thing with any business where it just, 
gets to a point where it's just like, you just have to change. You have to adapt. You have to, but it's all in sort of like finding yourself and drilling down to your own core. So, you know, when I tell people like I, you know, let me figure out how to sell it. I'll tell you if we need new headshots. I'll tell you if we need to, you know, change the resume. I'll tell you what we need to do. But like, you figure out what it is and you work on what it is and you like build the art and build the craft and like really get into it. Uh, let me help you figure out the business stuff. Like that's what I'm good at. So you're building a team too. That's the other part is just like, let the team do what it does. I had a, I had a very impassioned session with my class. Anthony you there. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> Where are we? Can you see me now? There you okay. are. Whew. All right. No, I had a very, I had a very impassioned uh, class a while ago when it came to the, um, why am I not seeing Anthony? When I, uh, people were bringing in the NCIS open call auditions. Do you remember that? Yeah. And so often I was, I was hearing from people like, is this the right one or is this the right one? And I kept on going, guys, fuck the right one, please. Yeah. Like all I want you to do is have a thing that excites you. Like, don't worry about getting it right. Who knows if anyone's ever going to watch it? All I want you to do is love whatever you're doing. P paint outside the lines. Stop trying to paint so within the lines you're disappearing. You know? Yeah, and I think especially with that, like, you know, if there are going to be thousands of thousands of submissions and you're going to stand out, like, it, you have to color outside of the box. Like, yeah. like how, like, are you just going to like go in and be like, okay, I need to make sure you can't paint by numbers it, uh, because they have that, you know, if they have 60 or 70 or 80,000 submissions, like how are you going to stand out unless you take risks? And, you know, we talk about this a lot of times too, where it's just like everyone, so not everyone, but so many people are just trying to do it right. And there's no do it right. There's no right. And it's, it, it, if, if, if you try to like check the box that is going to be the right box, someone is that. So they're going to bring that. So just right. really focus on how to bring yourself to each role and every piece. So I think that's, and listen, it's tricky. You know, if it wasn't, you wouldn't have a job. We wouldn't need. I, you know, I, I think what sometimes gets people in trouble and it's not how you meant it, but when you say bring yourself mm -hmm. and I think that makes people sometimes go, okay, so just do me rather than actually saying, bring my creativity, bring my artistry, bring my, my, my willingness to fail. Like, right. like fall on your face and let it be a true representation of your creativity and your imagination. Like celebrate you. Yeah. Yeah. You know what and I mean? that's, yeah, totally. And that's the part of the craft again, that like, I can't like, I, I can't quantify it. I don't know it, but like, I know when it's missing, you right. know, of course. Yeah, it's um, been really lovely. This has been awesome. Yeah. Um, I have one last question from the group, uh, yeah. which is just what is the best way to contact you, Anthony, just to say thank you. We've got that a couple times on the Q&A. Um, if people want to reach out. Yeah, email is probably best. Uh, I believe my email is on DDO's site. Um, if not, Edward Hong is in the uh, <laughs> chat. You can just ask him. Everyone inundate Edward. Um, but I'm Anthony at DDOagency.com. Um, you can email me. I'm, you know, we're, we're, uh, I'm, I'm active. I'm here every day. So, um, well, gosh, this was awesome. John, is there anything else that you want to say before we really, before we wrap up? No, I, I, I guess if anything, um, I'm really grateful to have finally met you. It feels, you've, I feel like I've known you for a long time in this one meeting. 
Yeah, same. I could I could have gone for two more hours to be honest yeah. with you. So me too. Well, maybe we could do another one. And I would love and, to. And uh, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed this, and I'm sure you know, in a month or so, we're probably going to have a whole bunch of new questions. Absolutely. And we didn't even get into, it's funny because when Brian and I first talked, like I thought, you know, so much of this was going to be like, how do I get an agent? And, and, and we didn't really get into any of that. So uh, all the boring questions that I hate in Q and A's. I, I told you we were going to do too many of those. I told you we'd yeah. try to steer away, steer when away. We, no, I have to say that was one of our, my things. I didn't want to have a conversation about yeah. like, how do you ever with any of our guests of like, or like, where it feels like the standard thing. I think it's just about humanizing this experience for everybody. We're all just people. And there's no, there's no period in our lives that has ever highlighted that more than right now. Very true. You yeah. know? And I think that's what everyone, everyone just needs to connect and yeah. just know that we're all, we're all just in it and we're all doing our best. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And yeah, and I appreciate it. And like I said, legitimately, anytime you want me back, I'm, I'm here. Quick break to tell you about a few things near and dear to my heart. First up, the movie I Will Make You Mine, the film from last week's guest Lin Chen, is available on Video On Demand services on Tuesday, May 26th. So please support her. Watch that beautiful film. You can find it everywhere. Um, also, if you haven't yet, please join the JRS Happy Hour Conversations Facebook page to hear about upcoming happy hours. We do those every Tuesday from 4 to 5. They're free. Um, you can also see replays of previous ones. This week coming up, we have Gloria Calderon Kellett, the showrunner of One Day at a Time, and just a total delight as a human being. So please, uh, it's free to register. It happens on Tuesday. Join the Facebook group and uh, sign up. And last plug, I promise, uh, it's been a couple weeks since we mentioned Jenna Doolittle and her Actors Rise newsletter and Facebook group. Uh, please subscribe and check out what she's doing. The resources she's offering actors are just out of this world, and it's free. So check it out, Actors Rise. Um, welcome, welcome. I hear that we also have a, a, a dog in the mix, too. Yeah, this is, uh, this is Bubbles Manganello. <laughs> Look at it's that. My, my bubble. Yeah, she sits on my lap all day long. She's so happy that I'm home all day, every day now. So there she is. Awesome. John, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, Joe, we talked a little bit on the phone before. By the way, I've known Joe for a lot of years. You know, we've, uh, uh god i don't remember i don't remember how many years uh but you know we've worked together occasionally um but i've uh you know i've always been a fan of you as a human being you know as well as an actor and that's why i thought you'd be really nice to have on you know because like the objective of this was just to you know all of us are all of us are quarantined you know, and quite a few having a tough time, you know, and I think just having someone, and I know, you know, you're, uh, it's just to say, like, everyone's having an experience during this. So it's about demystifying it and knowing that people on every level of career jobs are having a very unique experience. So um, knowing you, I knew you'd be a really great person to connect with during this time. So thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, John. I think it's 16 years. I was just thinking about it. I was doing the math. Wow. 16. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were like not... How long had it been you'd graduated from Carnegie Mellon? And I guess it wasn't that long before that, right? Carnegie Mellon was 2000. So that was, that was 20... Coming up on 20 years ago, I, I finished up at CMU. 
What's crazy is that uh, it was 20 years ago, for example, like 20 years ago, I auditioned for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Yeah. We shot, it, we shot it 19 years ago. And um, two days ago, the third was the 18th anniversary of it hitting theaters, which is, you know, I don't know where all the time went. That was, so that's, that's, that's two Spider-Man uh, trilogies ago. That was Topher Grace, right? Uh, well, no. So Topher was like the evil Spider-Man. He was Venom in in Spider-Man Three. Toby Maguire. I mean, uh, what's his name? What's but his Topher name? Topher was in the uh, in that franchise. Yeah. No, but the lead is what's his name? Toby Maguire. Yeah. Toby Maguire. Toby Maguire. Yeah. Toby, Tom Holland. Kirsten Dunst. We were all we were all kids. Oh my God! It's so fun when you come on. It's like Joe every single time. There's Joe, your baby. No grays at all on you. No, no, that was pretty great for sure. That was pretty beard. I don't even think I could grow facial hair. Well, actually, that's not true because when we all got cast, I was, by the time we started shooting, I was 24. I think James Franco was 24. Toby was around that age as well. So they would come out twice a day with, with, with a tray of razors for us to shake because we're playing high school kids and we would have five o'clock shadow by the time the shoot would get long. So they would have to come out and we would have to go somewhere and, you know, lather up and shave and then come back and keep shooting. <laughs> I do. I, I want to ask you, like you, you've always been such, you, I mean, I, you, we know about Dungeons and Dragons and you've been into superheroes for a, for a long time. Was that always your thing? Like, have you been into, into like that, that world uh, since you were a kid? Growing up as a kid, yes. <clears throat> I was into comic books and, you know, role-playing games, tabletop, all of that. I used to draw and paint. and, and um, But then I was 6'5", and, could, you know, done basketball in eighth grade, and, you know, was captain of the football team. You know, so it was all of that, you know, you're going to go down this path. And, and I come from western Pennsylvania, and that is a hotbed for – football and sports and, and basically the, the prevailing way of life is, is there is that, you know, you work hard at sports, you use that to get yourself into a great college, you then go do whatever your job is and grow up, go get a regular job. But I was an artist in, in, on the inside. And so um, <clears throat> somewhere towards the end of high school, my high school had a TV studio and I started writing and directing and starring in my own films and TV shows. Like we made a feature when I was in high school and we, I figured out how to do squibs with firecrackers and we'd, we'd eat cookie tins or the crackers out of the tin, you know, and get the tin top and we would shave them down and make chest plates or knee plates and we get uh, condoms full of uh, red Cairo syrup or pure Cairo syrup and red food coloring. We make these condoms and tie them off and put the firecracker under and cut it right so you know we'd have these gun effects and you know squib effects and it would splash blood everywhere but you had to stick your hand with the lighter in the frame and get it and get your hand out and get the shot you know so, so that was like kind of my first love i would wake up at six in the morning you know on weekends and chase daylight and we would go shoot with our, our shot sheet and i just taught myself how to do it i just i just loved it and um and um so towards the end of, of high school i just jumped tracks you know, the, the the high school acting teacher begged me to try for the high school musical. I was like, I don't think so. And I'm a captain of the ball team and I got colleges. Look, I can't do it. She's like, please just come, please. So I went 
and uh, she made me sing happy birthday and like do some kind of I don't know, ballet shit. I don't know what the hell, you know, we had, I had to do, <laughs> you know, but I did it and I forgot about it. And I got cast. He cast me as Judd Pry in Oklahoma. And, uh, and that was like enough encouragement for me to think, okay, maybe I should try the next step, which was to audition for Carnegie Mellon, which is very hard to get into. And, um, they were taking like 17 out of a thousand actors each year or something like that. And, uh, I tried out. I didn't get in. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, so I got rejected. I didn't apply anywhere else. I late applied to the University of Pittsburgh, which was across the street. And I went there, took all theater classes to the, you know, the chagrin and warning of my guidance counselor. <clears throat> worked my ass off for a year. I gave myself a year. I worked my ass off. And a year later... I walked across the street from Pitt to Carnegie Mellon and I auditioned again. And that time I was one of the 17 and got a scholarship and I didn't apply anywhere else. So if I didn't get in there, I don't know where the story would have gone. It was kind of crazy looking back, but you know, I just didn't have a plan B. That was it. It was like, I was going to go there. I went there for four years and, and, and that was it. So, you know, but in that time, I, I just kind of forgot about all that, you know, nerdy shit that I liked as a kid. And, you know, it was just, and, um, but recently, yeah, of course, they'll come back. <laughs> I, I have a question. Did you ever, you know, I remember for me, um, I come from such a different background than you, you know, I'm from Los Angeles where I was, uh, surrounded by art, artistic types. And I always felt like I was kind of hiding that side and I did play sports. And I remember when I got, went to college, I feel like I could fully embrace it. But even though, and I played baseball and I'll never forget, I had the lead in some play and I had brought the play into uh, my, the actual, you know, the actual play into the dugout. And I was on second base. I had gotten a hit. And I'll never forget, one of the players screamed out, Rosenfeld! And he had cut my play into little pieces of, con like, confetti. And thought it was the funniest fucking thing in the entire world. <laughs> and all my fucking play notes were in there. You know, and I just remember going, cool, that was great. Thank you very much. But I think it speaks to... Um, did you ever feel like when you were, did you feel like you had to hide your artist inside when you were in high school? Like, cause he was coming out. Was that like part of the, yeah. Okay. Yeah, very much. Um, it was, it was just dumb kid stuff that was never going to lead to a career. Um, it was just something frivolous I did as a kid. Right. Um, and, and especially when, you know, sports and girls started happening, it was like, you know, the other side of it is that I, 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 backdoored into acting through like amateur filmmaking basically i was my own little you know one man studio i had my friends and we had our own little you know we would this little team and we go out and our little crew we go shoot right i write stuff up we go shoot it um you know but there was there was a bit of that that like i mean where was that gonna go or or who was i to think I was going to do something like that, it, it, you know, because the other side of it was the artistic side for me in terms of acting. You know, I'd look across the cafeteria and the actors at my high school were all, you know, black turtlenecks, yes. sprockets, sprockets yes. you know, like they might as well have been carrying around a little skull that they were talking to all day long. You know, like it was just like, ah, I, I'm, I can't eat lunch. I'm not going to have lunch with that. You know, it was too much. That was too much of a jump. So somehow, 
filmmaking to me was cool. Now, mind you, I wound up going to a very rigorous classical theater training program and, you know, became, you know, I was in that turtleneck wearing club. I will say that now. I mean, I, you know what I mean? Like, you know, first day, first day of drama school, you know, I'm a jo- I was a jock predominantly. So first day of drama school, everyone wants to hug you and give you a kit. And it was like, just, yo, yo, whoa. You know, there was a, a softening up, I think that had to happen or, you know, an adaptation to that culture. But for me, the beauty of it was I was different. You know, by the time I really got there and got to drama school and I was with a bunch of kids who were who were in drama from the time that were little, I was I was different. Like I just I had a different I think I had a different flavor. And so when I played all those like Shakespeare villains and all the history plays, you know, Tybalt was six five and twice as big as 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 Romeo. You know, there was there was a difference. Or, you know, you kind of find your own way and you make those roles look look differently i mean it was a little bit i guess what i'm saying is it was lonely at the beginning but then once you accept that yeah i'm just coming at this from a different angle um i it, it made me happy and i wore that as a badge i think you know one thing we I, you know i talk about in class all the time is i think to get in this career like you have to have this fundamental belief that you're going to be okay you know that you're going to figure mm-hmm. it out um yeah. Like, you know, maybe I don't know where the fuck I'm going. I don't quite know. But if I keep on, I don't know, finding my own party, whatever it is, I'm finding out how I pop. It's just such an experiential thing, but just trusting that you're going to be okay. And if you don't have that belief, then kind of every bit of bad information that comes your way is just going to validate validate that core belief. And every good bit of information is going to seem like an anomaly. But if you have that belief that everything's going to be okay, you can weather the storm a little bit more and actually kind of get excited by those, you know, or at least have perspective on each new wall you hit. Yeah, I think, you know, watching The Last Dance every Sunday now, the, the Bulls Michael Jordan documentary. Yeah, it it's amazing. I, all the, I grew up, when I watched all those games growing up and kind of – you know, I, I was a kid watching them, but now going back and watching and seeing how much of a psycho Michael Jordan was about, like, every single defeat. If you see him in the interviews afterwards, you know, yeah, he was upset, but, like, he was like, no, nope, next year, we're coming back next year, we're going to take it to him. And then as soon as the interview was done, he was off in a weight room somewhere getting stronger so that he could come back and, and smash the Pistons in the face the next year. You know, it was like, each defeat was like, no, no, no. So I think, I think you need to be crazy. I think there's an amount of crazy that you have to have to think, yeah, I can do this. You know, because I think we all have friends who have been at it for a long time, you know. And, and, it, and at some point, you have to decide what you want out of life. Mm-hmm. And is this, gonna, is this career going to provide for you what you want out of life? Or, you know, you have to start looking at it through a realistic prism but you know for me it was always giving myself an amount of time I'm going to give myself an amount of time and I'm going to go at it a hundred percent like a hundred and ten percent and if I if it doesn't work fine but I just see a lot of people that maybe don't give themselves the chance properly because not trying 
is a self-sabotage because then when you don't get it, at least you have that in the back of your mind. Well, I didn't try my hardest. They didn't get to see the full me. So it's, it's kind of softens the blow. And I guess what I'm saying in this profession is you can't, you got to take the, you got to stand in front of that truck and go, you know, you have to, you got to open this thing repeatedly and you got to have somebody tell you, you walk funny, you talk funny, you suck. You're never going to make it. You're this, you're that. Blah, 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 blah. You got to keep opening it. It's, it's brutal. It's, it's horrific, but you're never going to know unless you go all the way. And luckily for me, I don't know what it was looking back. I'm like, Jesus, I was crazy to think I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't only apply to one school. What if I don't get in? You know what? I didn't get in that year. And then it was like, well, I'm going to try out again next year. It's like, what if you remembered me? And we're like, no, this guy again, you know, but you got to be crazy. You have to be crazy in your belief in yourself. You just, you have to. You I only applied to two. I remember I only applied to two and just kind of, I don't know. I had some faith in some way. But uh, but I also, if you give everything of yourself, even if you don't, you know, make it in the way that you think you, you know, you want to, at least you will learn what you should be doing. Like, I think you will learn a lot about yourself. Maybe you're going to be a writer. Maybe you're going to be a producer. Maybe you'll be a lawyer, but you're going to find, I think, you know, if you're using it in the right way, you're going to fucking learn about yourself. Uh, but you wrote a book about working out right yeah i mean it was it's it's an all over kind of self help book in a way right but you're basically saying when you think you've reached your threshold that's just where you're starting that's you've read it john this is amazing you know, yeah so <laughs> no that but that's true yeah it, it's about you know so i take training for an example because i was offered to write a celebrity bullshit workout book and i was like no i actually have some stuff to say and if you're cool with that i Maybe we sell less books, but, I, but my book will stick around because it's going to be true. So really what it's about is, you know, you could teach anybody in 30 seconds proper form to do this or do that. That's not what keeps people from getting in shape or keeps people from maintaining that. What keeps people from maintaining that is this. It's the attitude. It's the brain. It's telling you, like, you don't need to go this morning. You can sleep in. Or once you start getting in shape, you think, wow, well, I'm in the best shape of my life. Ah, I'm good. I'm going to backslide. It's it's about turning things into a lifestyle or you know, better yet, it's about taking an impossible task or an impossible dream and then reverse engineering that dream and breaking it into small digestible pieces and attacking each one of those pieces with a plan. Um, and you know, the perfect example was Roger Bannister who broke the four minute mile. You know, the mile was created by the Romans. Was ancient times so for thousands of years no one could run that mile in under four minutes so they just thought humans were only ever going to be so fast there was a ceiling we're done and um this british physician in the early 1950s came along and said you know what i i think that's bullshit i don't think that's right i think we can break this and so what he did was he broke he broke um the mile into four laps around a track and he hired four separate runners that could run a lap in under a minute and he would train against them all consecutively that was his plan if i can beat all four of them in a row these sub minute lap runners in a row then i should be able to run this thing in under four minutes and, and it worked but the craziest thing about it was the fact that once he broke it a few months later someone then broke his record so after thousands of years this guy proved it could be done mentally 
and then three months later, someone else breaks it, and then within a few years, people have broken it all over the world. And today, the record's like 347 or something insane, and high school kids break the four-minute mile. So the idea is, you know, mental, it's the mental part that you have to conquer. The body will follow if, if, if the mind leads it. I just, I just think back to you and I remember you were so, you never took acting lightly. You were always all in and you were consumed with it. I think, um, how do you, um, I think, you know, some people's challenge is, you know, when they come to a class or whatever it is, it kind of reminds them of where they're not. So I think that really speaks to, I think we all go through that. Sure. We go through it. I mean, driving through Beverly Hills, you're like, you know, when I was, you know, I signed my big contract on True Blood, you know, I bought a house and I saw what that money netted me in the form of a house. And then I drive around Beverly Hills and go, look at all these houses. They're 10 times as big as who, who the hell lives in all these places. If, if I'm on the big show right now, who the hell are these people? Like, there's always somebody else in L.A. Oh, my God. I actually took, you know, my, my mom bought a house in, uh, in 1976. My father and my mom bought a house in Brentwood for 250000 They don't live there anymore. But I went, I, I drove to my childhood home. Brentwood is not what I remember. It is insane. Yeah. Every house. And I was like, wow, I don't think, even going there, I was like, I, said, I thought the same. Who lives here now? Um, yeah, it, I, I, that makes so much sense. Um, but to what you're saying, it's, you have to get in a competition with yourself. You have yeah. to get in a competition with yourself and, and every person life experiences are so unique to them that you have to dig in on that. You, you have to understand what makes you special and what makes you different and develop that, you know, I, I because otherwise if you're looking at everybody else, I mean, come on, I mean, you're going to lose that game every time. Well, that's what, you know, that's what used to kill me when I was acting and I'd be coaching actors who'd book the role that I coached them on, you know, uh, when I, you know, and I would be like, wait, why am I not going in? So it was, it was nice when I basically just got, when I actually started getting paid for coaching and teaching. So then like, if I felt competitive with the people I was coaching, then I'm an asshole, but it really, it really made it to where I could fully, root and um you know comparison is a form of masochism and i think it must have been i i I, i'm interested to think like when you were coming up who were you did you ever start comparing yourself to other actors and would that drive you nuts well so there were different phases and there were different people that i was that i was uh so somebody in the chat would so i wrote a book called evolution just for people at home so it's called evolution you can check it out. It's available wherever books are available. Okay, sure thing. Skylar Mastain, uh, you got it. Um, but uh, I mean, so it, it changed, you know, um, because I think when I got to town, when I got to town, we were coming out of the '90s into 2000, right? So it was like I don't know. We were getting over the heroin chic thing. And, and like the big dudes of the eighties that I grew up with, they were no more. It was like the Miramax gang. So you had like Ben and Matt and those guys. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, everyone was like, you know, don't get too big muscularly, stay skinny, 
you know, so it's like we're all out at night smoking cigarettes and hanging out and being artistes, you know, so there was a bit of like, everybody wanted to be Edward Norton, <laughs> you know, or Gary Oldman or something. Not that I was compared or in those groups, but like, I mean, you know, I don't think that ever even worked for me. I mean, you know, I guess it was kind of a mishmash. When I first got to town, I don't think anybody really knew what to do with me because I was also 23. I was tall as a man, but I wasn't really a man yet. I was still in my early 20s. I was still kind of a, you know, so I filled out yet. My career really took off when I turned 30. It didn't matter what I did in my 20s. I didn't fit. The body didn't fit. The guy didn't, you know. And so once I was 30, yeah, then it started happening. Then, um, but then also, um, I think once true blood happened that that changed it all then i became i went into a category i think i think it was there um at the time i think there were a bunch of australian dudes i can't think of who they all are i think ed quinn said he was up for a few roles that like i got or victor webster said i think the same thing you know so those are like big dudes sometimes bearded sometimes not right um, i'll say i'll say this i'll say that Going back to the being different thing, um, I remember being told I was too blue collar, I was too this, I was too that. And there were a bunch of judgments made on me that, that weren't really who I was and at all. And I wound up in true blood after having dry pilot seasons for years. I had no pilot season. It was like every British guy and Australian guy got everything and I got nothing. And then I got the role on True Blood, which was a guest star, so I kind of backdoored into it and then wound up with this big deal after the character, you know, people liked my character. And the following year, all the breakdowns were, we needed Joe Manganiello type. And it was like, where were you last year, motherfucker, when I was starving? Where were you for the past five? Now, oh, now you want it. Now you want, oh, really? I thought I was too tall last year. I thought I was too blue collar or whatever, the, you know? So it's, it's like, you know, you just, like I said, you just, you're only competing with yourself. You got to put your head down. You got to figure out what's special about you and then just work on that or figure that out. And for whatever reason, it was like the long hair, the beard, the, the muscle, like whatever, all that stuff just clicked on that role and then it became this thing. So then all of a sudden it was like, well, he wants to be Arnold in The Rock or he, him and Jason Momoa. It's like, no, we're not. I went to drama school, no disrespect to anybody, but like I, I do a whole different thing. I remember going to a, I had a, a tested for um, the second 300, right? and. And it was like, they want a British dialect, is what they told me. And I said, oh, I said, well, which one of the 26 would they like? And they went, Joe, come on, just do a British. I go, oh, because, you know, Greek warriors have British accents. That makes total sense. I go, you know, like, Joe, just stop it. Just just do it. That's what they're looking at. I go, oh, okay. I go, well, that's the Mediterranean. I'm kind of offended. Maybe I should do a Greek accent. Would they, you know, like, I get out of here. I'm like, fine, whatever. So I go in and I do my, you know, I go into the, the, the scenes and the director just cocks his head like a dog and went like, do that again. Went, okay. So I did it again and he went, do it again. I went, All right. I did it again. He goes, 
I didn't think you were going to do that. And it's like, oh, Christ. You know, but he had, he had this thing in his head because I wound up fitting, I wound up getting lumped into this category of guys that I didn't necessarily, I wasn't necessarily a part of. And what came with that was all of the judgment of those guys in that group. And um, so the moral of the story is like, <clears throat> Now I'm fighting to get into another category. You know, like you're always, if you're doing your job right, somebody thinks you're this group, but then you have to snap that, break it, and go the other way. You know, um, it's like it's my, somebody, fucking my publicist sent me some article about, you know, I shaved my beard in quarantine. And people are like, oh my God, he's a different person. It's like, this is how, this is how fucking dumb. <laughs> <laughs> most people are it's like oh they, they think i'm dumb well i'll just wear glasses then and and like literally it's just stupid shit like that where you know you're constantly trying to overcome the last character that that you played or were known for um so now i, I don't even know what it is now but i'm just constantly trying to smash whatever anybody whatever category anybody thinks i'm in until i'm in my own category and people just say yeah he can do that i know we can do, he can do it have you ever listened to the uh, Ted Danson interview on on Sam Jones? No, but he's a Carnegie Mellon guy. I know. That's why I'm bringing it up. I just loved, I mean, it's a wonderful interview. If anybody hasn't listened to it, you really should. But at one point, Sam Jones asked, did you ever think about quitting acting? You know, because it took him a long time to get cheers. And, you know, he's a very, you know, I mean, he's very tall. He's, yeah. different. he's so brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, No. I didn't think about quitting. Like I was working. Like I, I did commercials. I did plays. You know. And he talked about how you know when he did. Uh, I just thought it was fascinating when he did Cheers. He uh, he said he saw it. He said it was so. He was so embarrassed. Mm. He thought it was so bad. And I think it, I, I'm probably getting it wrong. And I'm sure that uh, hopefully the 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 people here will tell me. But he basically said I think James. Uh, uh, what's the director? Um, the the multicam director, uh, James Burroughs, just laughed at him when he goes like, "I was terrible." He's, he just laughed at him and walked away. And of course, that made his biggest hit. But one thing I love is that Carnegie Mellon guy. It's like he has um, kind of defined himself in some way. Like he gets to weave in that out, weave in and out of like, like what is he? Well, at that time, you know, even when I got to town in 2000, the Cheers, the Cheers was long before that. But when I got to town in 2000, I mean, okay, for the young people out there, um, you were either in film or you were on TV. There was no cable. Sopranos had just launched in 1999. And prior to that, it was like the uh, Gary, Sa uh, Gary Shandling show, Larry Sanders. So there was no cable the way we know it now. Um, there weren't cable dramas. There, you know, with a handful of channels, it wasn't like it is now. So you were either a film star or you're a TV star and you had to declare that. So I'm sure, I wonder if Sam asked Ted about the stigma of being a TV actor that time, because I know that I got out of college and right. I was offered a TV holding deal straight out of Carnegie Mellon. It's like a big, you know, coming out of college, six figures, Deal. We're going to develop shows for you because we think you're going to be the next Tony Danza. And I went, I don't think that's me. You know, I don't know that that's what 
I'm here to do or, or ultimately want to do, I appreciate that, but I'm going to do film. And, you know, a few days later, I met Sam Raimi and screen tested for Spider-Man and, you know, the rest was history. And, you know, but, but there was, there was a, a firm divide between them two. You didn't slide between, really, I think, the way that we do now. It's like you just, I mean, shit, HBO was a launching pad for all of us into film. Um, and, and, and at the time, True Blood was better than anything that was in theaters around that time, you know, those first few seasons. So, um, but I think it's just like, once again, it's just Ted Danson knowing he was good enough to bounce between all of those things. But also what I hear from that as well is like, you don't know if you're good or not. You don't know if what you're doing in an audition or on film on set is good or not. And if you think it's great, you're probably too self-aware because you're probably monitoring your own performance right. for your own personal gratification, but you're not watching. So I'm always the guy that, you know, when you get done with the take and, the, and someone's like, how was that? What'd you think? And I'm like, I, I have no idea. You were the one watching the monitor. What do you think? Right. Because a lot of times the ones where I'm not self-aware, something comes out of me that like I never would have done. And, and I've, I've had that my first day on True Blood. You know, I was doing a Mississippi dialect. I'm on a show. I've watched every episode of. Like, there's Sookie. There's, there's everybody. Oh, my God. And I'm me. And I get to do my thing. And, oh, what the hell am I? I'm a werewolf. And I have, like, two pages full of exposition about werewolves living in Jackson, Mississippi. And I get to deliver all of this with my dialect, sitting in a chair, sipping tea with this fairy. You know, it was like, and all my brain was doing was, you're an idiot. Like, you... That dialect, you don't talk like that. You're full of shit. They're all going to Oh, look at the cameraman. He can't even look at you. He can't even look at the monitor. He's staring at the ground. Oh, my God. Anna Paquin knows it. Look at her. Look at her face. Oh, my. You know, that's what was going on. It was like, yell cut. Yell cut. Just yell cut and take a minute. Go for a walk. That's what my brain kept saying. And I didn't. I just stayed in the pocket. Shut the fuck up. Didn't make a face. You know, kept working, sweating. And when it came out, I remember like several people were like, dude, that scene was amazing. Oh God. Like it was like a master cut. You know, I'm like, shut the fuck up. Like, Oh God, I can't trust myself at all. So uh, wait, uh, uh, Javier, uh, sorry, I'm giving Sam Jones a lot of props today, but sure. uh, there's an interview that I played during uh, my intro class with uh, Javier Bardem and, and, and basically Javier Bardem's talking about how he, you know, he goes to this three week seminary, acting class uh and he acts him uh, amongst some like green people or whatever and they get to witness him struggle and all that stuff and just to get rid of all of his tricks and all of his bullshit but they're asking he was asking basically what do you what where when you're not in the pocket when you're not really present to what's happening he's like i just feel stuff in my body and so sam jones like i just feel like you know he describes it in his body and then he's like so but when you get there uh, that's when it's good, right? He's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, I just, I listen to the director and then the director tells me if it's good or not. And I just love, it. I think that's just, it, it, it's saying exactly what you're saying. It's like, yeah, like all you can work is to be present and then yeah, trust. But, but back to being crazy, <laughs> having the component of crazy, you know, I've gotten to the place where what I love about acting is doing all the work you know, like whenever Uta Hagen says, throw it away. Yeah. And then getting into this place where I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. 
I don't know what's going to happen right now, but I'm just going to get in there and like get, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, and, and uh, just get in that pocket and just see what happens. So I guess it's like getting, getting okay with, you have to be so okay with falling on your face, like in the most dynamic way possible. Like you just, you just got to get in there and just rip it and see what happens. Um, but I, I've gotten okay with that or, or I've gotten more exhilarated by that as my career has gone on. I think in the beginning I was so used to, and even on the day, like what I'm feeling, you know, I'm very controlled in the first couple of takes. I try to make sure that we get it all. But by like take three, take four, like stuff starts humming, you know, and then if I get a free spin, it, it, you know, if I get a free spin, then those are usually like the really, the really fun ones. So uh, I want to pivot a little bit. Brian, are you good with pivoting a little bit to quarantine life? Pivot away. Wait. I think Yeah. Uh, with someone that loves to be busy, as someone you love to be busy, how are you dealing with like today's life? Well, it's kind of like a prolonged preparation stage. Okay. You know, um, Sometimes when you get a gig, sometimes you get a warning and you know that there's a couple of months to prep for it, right? So it's kind of like that. Um, you know, I'm trying to enjoy it as much as I can. And I know that, God, I mean, saying that could piss off a lot of people because there's, I think there's probably a lot of people that are like, no, this isn't time to be happy and you shouldn't be happy and you should be miserable. and I'm having a hard time and I lost my job and you know what I mean? Like there is that amount of it, but I don't, I don't care. Like I'm, I'm just going to, you know, I have a dog. So I get up, I walk the dog, I take care of the dog. I learned how to transcendental meditate about 16 years ago. And, um, and I do that every day. So I get up, walk the dog, feed the dog TM, like control my mind, get in there. And then, um, you know, as we were talking before, I saved all my pennies my whole life, uh, especially as an actor. Man, starting out, I would always live within walking distance of a 24-hour fitness so that I never had an excuse. And I can't tell you how many Friday nights at 11.30 I was working out at 24-hour fitness, <laughs> you know, wherever they were. Much of the chagrin of my girlfriends who were like, I don't want to fucking live in this place next to this gym. And I'm like, I need it. You don't understand. I have this is for my job. And... And then I would save the money so I could buy an elliptical, buy a treadmill, and then I built a home gym. So I go down there and I, you know, I, I get my work on it. And, um, and then I read. I go make myself a cup of tea. I read. I mean, I got bored a couple years ago and went back to that creative side that I had as a little kid, that painter, writer, Dungeons and Dragons guy. And I started a streetwear line based in heavy metal and fantasy art that I know a lot about. So I creative direct and I'm, coming up with ideas and working with artists and commissioning these heavy metal artists to get the image that I see in my brain out on paper or painting or oils. And then I, you know, I'm in contact with my manufacturers and my distribution or, you know, I'm making shoes, I'm making bed slippers, I'm making this, I'm making that just to be creative, just to have those juices flowing and feel that, that fulfillment that I get from creating. And that's, you know, not, something that I need to pay my bills. It's just like, it's just a hobby that keeps me happy and doesn't have to do with anything on the acting side. 
The other side is, um, and Variety is actually going to launch an article, I think, tomorrow morning about, I, I, so I run, a, I, I run a Dungeons and Dragons game. And I've been able to, I figured out how to do the maps online, dungeon maps and everything online um, with the monsters. So I run it for like a group of celebrities, <clears throat> very like high, like A-list celebrities and producers and directors and writers and video game designers. And, um, and I've figured out how to do that. And we've had op offers to go public with it or to play every week and stream it for money. And it's like, we don't want it. Like, this is our respite away from, from work that we all get together and get to, I mean, and it's like, you know, it's the guys who created Game of Thrones and you know, Tom Morello, Rage Against the Machine and Vince Vaughn and the big show from WWE used to fly from Florida every week for the, you know, so it's just a bunch of guys who, you know, it's like, that's how we started writing. That's how we started creating. That's how those guys learned how to show run and create a show like Game of Thrones. It's how Vince Vaughn and I learned how to first do character backstories before we even knew that was a job. Um, and so we've continued doing that. So I guess, you know, the moral of what I'm saying is that, and somebody said, yeah, Big Bang Theory wrote an episode kind of loosely based on my, my celebrity home game. Um, but it's, it's just being creative in whatever way you can, just getting that out. And, um, and I think that's super important. You know, I think the trick about L.A. that I would tell young actors is you're going to get out to L.A. and you're going to have all this downtime. You're going to work less days than you don't. And when coming off of a drama school where you work every day. And, and so I think a lot of like, you know, getting back into the flow for actors in LA is, is getting to act every day. It's like super important to be in classes where you're getting together with a group and working on scenes because you've got to keep those juices flowing. You got to get your 10,000 hours or you know, whatever. But aside from that, like I tell people, you need a hobby, you know, the way that, Samurais used to take up calligraphy because there's something about the flicking of the of the brushes that would teach them lessons about sword fighting. And I guess what I'm saying is that like, just be creative. If you're a writer and you love writing, just journal, write, do, you know, um, do the artist way, you know, get together with a group. You could be doing, you could be doing artist way on zoom once a week for 12 weeks with a group. And it would be amazing for all of you. You know, look at this. I'm trying to look at this time as a cocoon that I'm going to come out of. I mean, all I do is bitch about all the books I have on my shelf that I never get to read. Well, now it's time. I can get through them all. You know, I, I will say that, you know, I went and um, worked with David Sullivan, my man David Sullivan, um, on. Uh, for those who don't know, David is one of my teachers. David's one of the teachers. So I came in with David and we were working on going over something that I read for before quarantine hit. Well, they wanted me to then screen test twice during quarantine for that same thing. And had it not been for quarantine and COVID, I would probably be getting close to being on set with that thing right now that may, may or may not ever happen now. Okay. But I'm as much as I can retain my sanity i'm 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 continuing towards that as if it's going to happen <laughs> that's very positive uh well i think for everybody uh you know this quarantine we talked about it last week but it definitely uh 
high, you really have to confront the life you've created. You know, like we were talking about sometimes when time gets frozen, you're like, okay, wow, I have a roommate that I don't, that I can't live with. Or I think, yeah, you really, I, I think there, there can be a lot of good coming right now because whether it's, okay, wait, I had a lot of things that I had stopped doing that I can continue, or I'm really confronting, I need to find some things to do, you know? And I think, uh, uh, you know, again, it's all perspective. And I do think people need to not feel bad about finding the positive during this time. Right. You know, I think during classes sometimes there's been a person, I remember a person kind of apologized, like, I'm doing great. Like, actually, I- Yeah, you don't want to say that, that in like, acting class. Like, yeah. I'm not experiencing, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at home, I'm not, uh, I'm not worrying. Like, uh, you know, I'm actually doing a lot of voiceover auditions. I'm spending time with my wife. Um, I'm really liking it. And there were a couple of people in the room, I think in our Zoom room, that were, you could tell were almost like, a li- not quite how dare you, but it was like, wow. But there's nothing wrong with that. We are allowed to have great moments. I think that's the only thing that will allow us to get through this. And you, and you should be. I think you, yep. you should be. You have to be going for, you've got to be happy. You've got to figure it out. And if you're bored or you're frustrated, then you've got to get creative. Because God knows when we're going to go back. Who knows when we're going to go back? It could be two years. I mean, I think that, or, or, or if it's before then, it's going to be some form of science fiction-esque. We're going to fly 300 people off to a hotel. We're going to quarantine them for two weeks. Then we're going to daily test them. We're going to make sure that no crew members or actors go out to a bar or a grocery store, anywhere that would contaminate. You have to then get very creative as to who's going to see their family members and kids while this quarantine is happening. And because if if one through five on the call sheet goes down, you're done. Like who's going to, who's going to bond that? Who's going to, you know, so, so what I'm saying is that like, well, how can we keep entertaining each other right now? If this goes on, what is an animation? Can you, could you write a cartoon? Could you do voiceover? Could you do a little Twitch show? Could you come up with, I don't know, like doing play readings of great plays together and everyone tunes in on Monday and watches you go through Henry four part one or something. Like, I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm just, I'm throwing out ideas here, but what I'm saying is like, you've got to, it can't stop. We can't stop creating because we're in a quarantine and just because just because somebody's not hiring you for an acting gig doesn't mean that you you can't be creative or you're not allowed to be creative. All I ever wanted was to be creative seven days a week if I wanted to in a meaningful way. And I had to go create a lot of that for myself. Well, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for Brian Norris. Uh, you know, this was one of his ideas and Brian's always coming up with ideas. And this is the shit that keeps me sane. You know, between teaching and doing this and just coming up with stuff in opportunities to connect, because I drive myself crazy if I'm just left to my own devices. So I need to live in a connected creative space. Um, I have a question. What do you have moments where all of your meditation, all of your great habits just does not work that day? Like, do you have any of those days where you're just like, I'm having a little bit of an anxiety attack. I'm, I'm having a little bit of a like, okay, the world's falling apart. The yes. irrational moments of catastrophizing. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
I mean, you mean like like now in quarantine or just in general? Because I mean, the answer is yes to both. Let's start with the quarantine time. Well, sure. I mean, you know, after going through this, you know, after having that testing process continue in a quarantine for that role, for example, you know, I get an email where my agents are saying, hey, we're gonna, we need to set a phone call for everyone to jump on the line, all the managers, all the agents together, and you, Joe. And I, you know, I turned to my wife and was like, yes, you know, yeah. And going on the phone, because, you know, anytime they're getting on the phone together, it means only good stuff. When my dog wants me to pick her up, hold on. Sure. Okay. It's uh, Bubbles. For those of you tuning in late, this is Bubbles. Um, I got on the phone and they were like, hey, they're going to do another round. So, like, <laughs> they need you to re-record everything. They thought you were sitting in a chair that was too big for you. They want you to sit in a smaller chair and put on a T-shirt instead of long sleeves. But they love you. And I went, you needed to put me on a conference call to tell me that. Okay. All right. So, yeah, then you hang up the phone and you're like, ah, you know, you want to go crazy. And then you calm down and then you be a professional and you go get a smaller chair and you do the whole thing all over again a week later. Um, then they, then the com- another conference call is going to happen. Okay, great. Um, hey, they're not going to make a decision until they understand how filming would potentially commence. So I need to like forget about it all right now? Yes. Okay. And then you can lose your mind for a few hours and then go, you know, watch a couple episodes of Mad Men with your wife, walk your dog and chill out. And, you know, what are you going to do? You know, there's so much of this business is out of your control. What's you can either approach it with a bad attitude or you can approach it with a good attitude. And that's not to say that you're not going to have anxiety and freakouts. Like you're allowed to feel those things but you need to exit those feelings as quickly as possible and get back to making lemonade out of the lemons. If you don't like it, you've got to, you know, and like I said, I've had, I've had the biggest projects on, on the planet canceled with me in them. You know, I've had to go through horrendous, like the, you know, jobs of your life going away because of whatever factors. And it's, it's part of this job. <clears throat> you've got to be able to handle that stuff. And without, I don't know what, doing heroin and, you know, like something. I had a number of clients uh, who got blown home during shooting pilots abroad or like, you know, in Vancouver, you know, Atlanta. Um, And, you know, I think the difference in this one is everyone got flown home. So, you know, you're not on an island. So there's a shared experience. I know some of yours, it was not, it was not a shared experience. It was just happening to Joe, which makes it a little harder. Um, but, uh, Brian, did you have a follow-up to that? I mean, I've got a couple questions that I've got stored up on this, uh, on just from the Q and a, I'll say this one thing to what you said, John, and it's quick. It's uh, I used to have a manager that used to say, uh, I don't mind getting fucked as long as everybody else is getting fucked too. And that's, That'll be the that's tagline for the episode. true for me in terms of entertainment. As long as everybody else is getting fucked, I'm, I'm okay with it to a certain extent. 
Yeah. Well, well I have to, when you're feeling, just real quick, when you're feeling that moment of, like today, I have to admit, I feel a little guilty. Like I was having a bit of a stress. We're dealing with that whole many, like the PPP, which is like, you know, what you go through as a for a business and trying to get that loan and all that. And I was feeling this level of anxiety. And I saw my little seven-year-old. I was like, Charlie, let's go on a bike ride. But I wasn't saying, will you? I was like, I need to bike ride with you. Like I need to ride or I need to feel the wind with you. And um, so I used him a little bit today. But he was he welcomed it. But we all need our our thing, even if it's bubbles. Yeah, bubbles is the best. Man. Bubbles is great. You can adopt a dog. Adopt a dog. It's the best. Uh, Brian, do you uh, you want to go to a little Q and A? Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna echo the get a dog though. Gosh, hit up the shelters. We did that right before quarantine yeah. started. We got so lucky. We got hazy right before that, and it's a little bit of joy every single day. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we have a couple questions, just uh, awesome questions from the group. So, Joe, uh, this comes from Allison. I thought this was a, I thought this was a nice deep cut. I thought this was interesting. Um, she says, "Hi, thanks, John, for getting this together. Hello, Joe. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about your experience working with Terrence McNally on unusual acts of devotion, and what did you learn from him?" Oh man. Um, so I learned a lot, you know. Um, so I got to originate. I got to originate a role in a, in, in a new Terrence McNally play. And we did the, uh, at the Ojai Playwrights Festival, which was such a great and fun, uh, hold on one second, my wife is calling. Yeah, I have the dog. <laughs> She's checking to make sure. Uh, yeah, so um, I went up to the Ojai Playwrights Festival and spent a week there as part of it. And if you ever, I mean, I don't know how they're doing, but you know, once COVID, they do it every summer. And if you have the chance to go or chance to work there, it's amazing. And this one year, Terrence McNally was there, who I studied in college. She was a legendary American playwright, one of the one of the great legendary American playwrights. Um, you got to put him up there with you know Mamet and I mean like Bogosian, Sam Shepard, Terrence McNally. He's he's up there, um, and. I got to help workshop a brand new play of his and then put it up for an audience at the end of this week. And out of that, they asked me to come and then do the show at La Jolla for the West Coast premiere. And, oh my God, it was, um, to watch the writing process, you know, I will say this, what's interesting is that a lot of times writers, like what I was echoing, what I was saying about acting, like the great genius writers, they have no idea what they're writing or what it means. Because the director would open it up to Terrence, say, Terrence, do you have any notes? And Terrence would start explaining to you how to play the scene. And you're like, that's, it's impossible to play it that way. And that's not actually what you wrote. And it was such a <clears throat> eye-opening experience that, you know, a writer, like the great writers write, they just hand it off. And then we interpret it. And we try to, you know, we're the masters of figuring out what the whys and hows and the, you know, kind of the, the, the active psychology of it and the interaction of it. <clears throat> but in that moment, I realized like Terrence kind of didn't know what he wrote, which is kind of fascinating to me. He writes these brilliant scenes, but doesn't even know why the, what makes them brilliant. It just comes out of it. And so that became a way for me to look at acting that way, which is like, if I'm so on top of it and manicuring it, I mean, I don't know the best answer. <laughs> I'm sure there's a better answer out there than I can come up with. And so trying to get to this place, you know, spiritually, mentally, physically, where 
you just, you don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, you've rehearsed it, you've learned it, you understand why you're saying what you're saying, but in the moment, there's, there is an equation where one plus one equals three. There, there, there's somehow you can get something better out of yourself if you're willing to let go. And Terrence was kind of the perfect example of just the way that he wrote. He just let it fly. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was one of the first, the first people to die of, of, of COVID-19 um, in the United States, which was crazy. He just, you know, he died like shit. He died almost two months ago, um, which was kind of wild. So, uh, yeah, I was very, very sad about that. You know, rest in peace. He was, he was an American great, and I'm so glad that I got to do that play with him before he was gone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so sad losing him. Um, yeah. But I do love what you're saying about that because, you know, so often when we're coaching clients and working in class, it's hard not to see people put the writer up on a pedestal and think that they must have the answer. Casting has the answer. The director has an answer. And what you're describing is so much more of like a dialogue, an emotionally based dialogue that includes everyone's creativity and that there is no actual right answer at the heart of it there's just what that dialogue creates and i think there's yeah. a lot more fun and possibility in that for sure well and terrence is a genius so you know you can trust terrence yeah sometimes <laughs> sometimes you need to be your own advocate whether it's a director or a writer or someone you know i think you get to that place in the business once you've worked long enough where you can read a scene immediately and go oh this is going to be rewritten 10 times the sunday before we get to that episode but I'm going to give it my all so that they can see, or I'm going to give it my interpretation so that they can see what I think is going to work or not. But you, you have to say, I don't, I don't know if that's right. Let's, we can play with it, but I don't think we can film that. And isn't there also something to when a writer really has faith in the actors, they don't want to impose necessarily some of their, always impose their thoughts, like let you find it rather than boxing you in to what I kind of want with this moment. I, you know, I think there are times yeah. where there's a little bit of like, explore. I'll leave it to the director to find, you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's, you know, coming from theater, you have three, four weeks to play around with it before you put it up. I mean, the first week is only table work. So you're just yeah. sitting behind a table all just reading the play every day and just getting into it. And, um, and I try to look, you know, film is different. Film is, it's like boxing. It's like you go off, you train. I'm going to train. I'm going to meet you in the ring. And we're going to see what we got. And somebody's going to film it. And, you know, sometimes when you get there, like, for example, on TV, they have rotating directors over years and years and years. So, you know, the actor's going to know better most of the time than a director. Sometimes the director's going to try to coach you into something that ain't right. Right. And so that's, you get into a tricky situation where in film, I think, is, is more of a... Somebody will get that. We're live. Yeah, you can take it live on air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think, um, you know, in film, I try to have those conversations out, like, as much ahead of time as I can with a director, because sometimes you can, you know, can lead to awkward situations if you're coming from a different place. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we got some magic mic questions uh, that I have to ask. Uh, the first one was just, can you talk about your experience on that and your dancing background? Uh, well, I mean, Ed, oh, my dog's barking at the person at the door. I just thought a really big Magic Mike fan, Bubbles. Yeah. So, uh, with Magic Mike, I had a lot of dance and choreography in college, and certainly fight scenes are very much choreography. Um, 
but you know, with that said, it's like, I then have to tell the story of a guy who's not the greatest dancer who then finds his inner dancer while on ecstasy pills in a convenience in a gas station convenience store. So you have to kind of mask any sort of coordination or dancing ability until it's the right moment. And up until then you've got to portray this, this lug, uh, you know, uh, or Jocko kind of guy, um, who then you learn is a closet Backstreet Boy fan and, and knows all of the choreography by rote. But those were, once again, those were conversations that I had with choreographers. You know, it's a very collaborative process. Um, but, you know, those were two movies with Steven Soderbergh and Greg Jacobs, um, who, I mean, Steven didn't say a word to any of us, ever. Steven just cast you, and whatever you bring, you're allowed to bring whatever you want. Wow. Try, let's try it. Yeah. So um, with that said, it's, it's ultra super creative, but there is inevitably a point during the process where you're like, Steven, do you hate what I'm doing? Or do you, did you haven't said two words? And he's like, no, 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 I would tell you if it's bad. And you're like, okay, because I'm starting to have like a head trip right now. Dude. You're like, not saying anything. And he's like, no, 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 you're doing amazing. You know, but the great thing about Steven is that he edits the night up. So what you shoot during the day, he'll edit it that night. And he'll show it to you. So then you go back to set the next day knowing what take he chose and what story. And he films in order. So you're just, you, you go to work and leave, pick up where you left off. And, you know, I talk about trust. Like, and that was the best advice like Chris Rock ever gave me. Chris was like, there's a list of A-list directors. That's the toughest nut to crack. Those dudes will make you look good go just work with the A-list directors because you can trust them. And that's been the truth for me. Steven was never going to let us look stupid. I mean, my first conversation with him was a 20-minute conversation about penis pumps. I'm like, so is this penis pump here? What are we doing? Is this me just walking with, with the pump? Or am I, you know, what are we, he goes, no, 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 no. Two guys are having a conversation and in the foreground, you see this thing that's blurry. And they're just talking. They're having a really serious conversation. It's not about that conversation. You're just going to see this thing kind of inching up blurry in the frame and I'm like oh god I couldn't even I couldn't have read that script a hundred times and pictured what he saw and how he was going to frame that up and it's like one of the funniest fucking moments ever like as soon as he explained that to me I was like oh my god I'll do whatever you say I will never you are never gonna like hang me up to try and make me look bad and so you know I think it's you know it's about fighting and working for the freedom to work with those genius level people like a Terrence or a Soderbergh and Greg Jacobs. I have a little bit of a follow-up coming from a question. You know, one thing that John Malkovich said was that he really loved, he loves working with the Coen brothers. Like, you know, sometimes he, he, he's leery to get into a film because I think maybe he's worked with directors that he doesn't like where he doesn't know what it's going to look like at the end. He goes with the Coen brothers, you know exactly what they want it to look like, you know, shot for shot. So you leave there knowing what they're what it's going to look like on film and he's like often he's like but when he does other films you have no fucking clue you could do the best take they don't use that the bad take they use that and someone asked question to joe and john what are the best advice tips you've got from working on screen or on stage that you're still using to this day that's a very big question but well that's like i mean since we're talking yeah and I, i agree with what he's saying you know and you know if I'm the kind of I'm the kind of actor that likes to do his work on his own. I like to work on my character alone, and I like to bring it. And I'm going to do all my work. If I'm playing a Navy SEAL, I'm going to go find a Navy SEAL, and I'm going to shoot with him. 
So when I get to set and there's not a Navy SEAL there and no one else is consulted with the Navy SEAL, I get pissed off. Right. And then I wind up hiring the Navy SEAL out of my own pocket and bringing him to set as my own personal advisor. That Russell's feather, Russell's feathers, I mean, I don't know what to say, but I, I, I can't tell you the amount of times I've been on a set with the director directing tons of action and gunshots and all this stuff that he's cooked up. He's never fired a gun before, has no idea how to hold one, and is trying to ask, and is asking me now or demanding that I do something on a take that is not correct and is going to make me look like an idiot after all that work. And um, so, you know, I mean, back to your question. That was off topic. But back to the, 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 the question that was asked, like Soderbergh told me, I, I got to hang out with Soderbergh every night on Magic Mike 2, and it was like a master class. He told me where all the bodies were buried, who to trust, who not to, who's good, who's not in this business. A basic overview of studio system through like some horror stories that he had been through. And he said to me, he said, look, you know, there's a whole lot of people out there that would murder somebody to work in this profession. He said, so show up 15 minutes early and look the best you can. <laughs> and that's coming from Soderbergh who was nominated, you know, one of only two directors nominated for two Oscars in the same year for different films for best director. Like he's a genius and he's show up 15 minutes early, you know, work your tail off and, and, and look the best that you can. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, I want to quickly get just a couple more in here because we're, we're running right up on time. Um, Caitlin Bennett asked, um, are there any ways you combat nerves or anxiety during the beginning stages of your career when you're auditioning? Is that where the TM really comes into play or, or what else do you, what else do you have for? Yeah, probably maybe. I don't know. Um, you gotta work, you gotta work. You gotta know that shit backwards and forwards, yeah. you know? Um, for example, like the thing I went in on before quarantine hit, um, it was 19 pages and it was 19 pages of like monologuing, like of like rapid fire observations, lots of exposition. And I remember a buddy of mine, I was talking to him about it. He's like, yeah, man, they just want to see, they just want to see what you're like. They just want to see if you, if you're the guy. And I'm like, eh, eh, I don't know. I don't know. And I didn't listen to him saying that. And I knew those 19 pages backwards and forwards. I knew them cold. And when I do that, then it allows me to play. Because what's going to happen inevitably is I'm going to walk into that room and sit in the lobby. As soon as I walk in, it's all going to get white. And they're going to start talking to me and we're going to start talking. And, you know, I'm going to – and then I'm, and now I'm going to be asked, okay, jump into it. You should be nervous. You should have anxiety. That's the good stuff. Riding the fear, riding that fear wave is like why we do this. That's, that's like the beauty of it. That's all rocket fuel if you can convert it, you can turn it around. It's not about not being afraid. It's just about being prepared so that when you jump in there, you're ready to go. And it's same thing physically. It was like, oh, you're going to be on true blood and you're going to be the naked werewolf guy. Well, I can either come in in bad shape or I can come in in the best shape of my life. Which one's going to make me feel more comfortable and ready to do those scenes? I don't want to worry about anything but those scenes. So I don't want to be thinking about how I look, any of that bullshit. So for me, it was about putting that work in so that I could get to set and just, you know, and when that thing started talking to me, I could like shut it off. To add to that, 
uh, to answer that question is I, I as someone who uh, you know sometimes fear became debilitating uh, early in my career it really was debilitating when I truly was not prepared I didn't necessarily know how to prepare and you know and I think when you don't know how to prepare you know sub- subconsciously you know you're 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 almost kind of I hate to say prepared to fail, but you don't quite know what to do to be successful. So I think when you are that prepared, you have a different relationship with the nerves in general because you trust that you'll be able to have that moment before, listen, play. And if you do fuck up, you're fine because you know what your point of view is and you will survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just work, man. I mean, it's, you know, work. You just got to put that work in and that'll make you feel better. Um, one last one, and this is because I told my mom that I would ask it for her, is, um, I promised, uh, is there any talk of the Magic Mike team getting together for a Zoom reunion to give the people what they want during quarantine? <laughs> uh, hey man, like I was saying in the beginning, you know, it's like you're constantly trying to break that mold and move on to the next thing. So I am, I mean, hap- I'm happy to say it, but sad, I guess, for maybe your mom is sad that I am, I am now retired from that game and it is time to move on to other things. I will write but her a really sweet email about it. The DVD, she can watch the DVD or watch it on streaming. <laughs> I, she absolutely can. Thank you for that. Uh, John, any last questions? No, Joe, it was such a, it was so great having you. Uh, it was great to connect. Yeah. Like being able to just, you know, in this time where we're all at home, it's nice just to just be with you for an hour. Yeah. Thanks, man. John, and thank you so much. You said something to me that I don't even know if you know it, but it changed my career forever. I remember right after I met you, you said, I don't know, I think I, you read something with me. We were in a hallway. You read, I said, hey, could you read this? You read it with me, or maybe we were coaching. And you said afterwards, you said, hey, man, you said, the way that you look and your size, you said, if you can be this big, strong guy who's not afraid to be vulnerable and let people see that part, that's an unstoppable combination. It will never not work. You just need to figure out how to be that. And I thought of that, that struck me, and I still remember it to this day. And I, I think I have a whole career built upon that model that you were talking about. So I've used it time and time again. So you saw right into me, and you were like, that's what you need right there. You do that, you're going to work forever. Boom. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, man. You got it. <laughs> I don't want to end. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>